0: This is episode 276 of Alohomora for July 20th, 2019. Welcome listeners to another episode of dot Mugglenet.com's in-depth exploration of the Harry Potter series. I'm Michael
1: Harley. I'm Irvin Kateman.
2: And I'm Kat Miller. And our guest today is one of the awesome members of the Speak Beastie social media team, Ev. Hello, Ev. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. And thank you for being an awesome part of, you know, our podcast family as a member of the Beastie social media team. Thank you
3: claps to
2: you uh tell our listeners a little bit about yourself
3: uh, my house is gryffindor so uh i didn't appreciate one of Irvin's comments about gryffindors in the dog but we'll get to that later
1: <laughs> oh this is gonna get real contentious i can tell
3: <laughs> but i'm glad i'm here that uh, and uh, be able to hopefully uh, defend gryffindors a little bit um yes yeah, so my favorite book is order of the phoenix Yay! Uh, I like you. We're (laughs) friends. (laughs) Um, And I'm sort of a little bit late to the party with regards to Harry Potter. Uh, I was in my mid-teens when it was all happening. And my parents' friend's daughter was about 11 or so, and she was really into Harry Potter. And I sort of got it in my head that it's for like little children, and I was too cool. Uh, So I sort of ignored it, which I regret now. Uh, but I watched some of the films, but I didn't really read any books until about three years ago, uh, when my son was mm. six, and people were talking about it, and he was like, "What's going on? I don't understand what it is." Then I decided, "Well, oh, let's let's give it a go." It's probably awful because I've heard all the bad things about it, none of the good stuff. And I think the real turning point for me was actually the Fantastic Beasts film. I went to see it, and I was having my cake. I'm thinking about it and I thought, you know, I like this. I'm going to give this Harry Potter thing another, another go. And yeah, so I'm here now.
2: Wow, so like Fantastic Beasts actually turned you on to something. Like, yeah, as it kind of reminded
3: to- me of it because I did enjoy the Harry Potter Oh movies, my God, but- some
1: good came of this
0: franchise. Uh,
3: yeah. <laughs>
0: Now It should be noted, listeners, too, that Ev is not only a member of the Beastie social media team, but she has also kind of spearheaded some awesome stuff in the Speak Beastie common room, which you can actually uh, experience if you're a part of their Patreon um, membership, because uh, Ev is the one who kind of leads uh, postcard and gift exchanges throughout the year uh, and organizes those. And I've been a part of that once, and that's that's a really fun thing to get you know, receive stuff from uh, you know, different different Harry Potter fans around the world. So that's really cool. Yeah,
3: and you you were my Secret Santa last year.
0: Yeah, yeah, the Secret Santa was really was really fun. But what it it wasn't it called? Didn't you call it something like Fantastic Gifts and Where to Find Them? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's, it's cute. That is very <laughs> so. cute.
2: We we may have to steal that. That sounds like a lot of fun. Well, borrow. We're not stealing anything. We're just borrowing. Well, I
3: mean, I am in the um, Dumbledore's office, so I can help you out with that, too, if you like. Okay, perfect.
0: And, Ev, speaking of sharing things worldwide, what part of the world are you in?
3: Uh, I'm in Northern Ireland, in Belfast. That's
0: amazing. You're closer than any of us right now to all of the real Harry Potter business. Mm-hmm. Sure.
3: Yeah, well, I, I guess Dublin isn't too far away, and they've just... Um, uh, they. Are, Either already installed it or they're about to install the big wand display, the one that goes on the bridge.
2: I oh, haven't yeah. It. Uh, so it's oh. about
3: two and a half hours by train from me. I uh, haven't seen it yet, but I'm hoping to maybe get to it in August.
2: I've heard it's really beautiful, so
3: I'm jealous.
1: <laughs> and so this episode is going to be one of our chapter revisits. We are revisiting Deathly Hallows Chapter 5, Fallen Warrior. So, listeners, you should obviously read the chapter before listening to this episode. And for extra credit, you can listen to the original episode on this chapter. That would be episode 155, Seeds of Doubt, with Michael and Kat, Allison, and guest host Stephanie. Uh, and that was back in September 2015, so I think we're due for a revisit.
2: Oh, wow. I didn't realize that Michael and I were both on that episode as well. How fun. I
0: I remembered that because that's one of my most controversial episodes. Ooh!
1: <laughs> oh, I'm excited
0: Is now. Is that the
2: one where we talked about Lupin being sad? Yes. Uh, yes. Or, yeah, sad that she didn't lose the baby. Right. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I remember, <laughs> I remember that. Yep. 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 Right. Okay. Um... Yeah, that was a fun one. That was a good episode. Yeah, it was. I,
0: I yeah, that it. was a good... It was a good episode. It was.
2: We want to take a quick moment before we jump into the rest of the episode and let you guys know that today's episode is sponsored by Native Deodorant. For 20% off of your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code OPEN during checkout. More importantly, our other sponsor on this episode from Patreon, Amy Ward. Hello, Amy. Thank you very much for sponsoring us. This is actually her third time. Sponsoring us for an episode, longtime sponsor, Amy. You're awesome. Thanks to you. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And anyone out there listening, you guys can become a sponsor of the show for as little as $1 a month. How many pennies is it, guys? 100 pennies. Yeah, 100 pennies. And we've been releasing some really awesome exclusive tidbits only for our sponsors. So visit patreon.com backslash alohamora. Find out more.
0: You could probably find a hundred pennies while you're walking around playing Wizards Unite.
2: Yes, exactly. That's what I've been saying, and now you guys have another built-in reason to do it. Just saying. Yeah. Uh, especially it, like the one. The one dollar is worth it just to listen to the behind-the-scenes special that Patrick put out for us. It's amazing. Legitimately cried. I don't know, like four times. Got all teary with the memories. So seriously, it's worth it. Even if you. Do it for only a month and then cancel. Do it. It's worth it.
0: And we also want to show some appreciation to our listeners by reading and exploring some of your guys' comments from previous episodes in our Shout Out Maximus segment. Uh, And we have a special thing to tell you all about how Shout Out Maximus are going to be a bit reworked based on some of your guys' input that you gave us about how we can uh, improve this section of the show. So, uh, we love all of our comments that we get from, uh, for shout out Maxima, but we don't always have the time to go through them anymore as far as like discussing them at length. And we want to, we want to make sure and highlight that because you guys still carry on the discussion on your own and you're always welcome. And we always encourage you to go back to the main site, uh, once uh, you have listened to us talk about this, some of the comments. But uh, so, what we're going to do from now on, what we're going to try and do is actually do a, a new upvoting format. So, you'll notice when you go to the Aloha Mora main site and you look at the comments that there's actually a little tiny up arrow under every comment that uh, is put on an episode. If you like that comment, you should definitely give it an upvote uh, because. We are kind of going to be. We always read all the comments, but we're going to kind of keep an eye on some of the ones that get upvoted to help us uh, to help inform us of which comments we're actually going to use uh, on the show. We will pick one comment uh, per episode to read on the show and discuss a little bit at length because we just don't have the time to do multiple comments. And we can tell you, too, now, listeners, that it's not going to be every show where we're always going to pick the upvoted comment. It might be an episode where we pick uh, we just pick one that we think is the most interesting. So don't worry. This isn't going to be like an elitist thing where you're just like, well, if my comment never gets upvoted, I'm never going to be on. Um, that's not going to happen. Don't worry about that. Um, but it does help us a little bit with kind of just as we glance through sometimes when we're getting over 100 comments on an episode to be able to say, oh, OK, this one got lots of votes. Let's talk about this one. So make sure to just hit that little up button when you go to the main site uh, for, to help us out with these shout-out maximas. But our shout-out maxima for this episode goes to Thestral Knight, who had some thoughts about the Whomping Willow on episode 274, which was, of course, exploring uh, the uh, Moony Wormtail Padfoot and Prongs chapter of Prisoner of Azkaban. And we had been discussing on that episode about how the Whomping Willow got to the Hogwarts grounds so quickly for for Lupin's use, Um, how it was, if it was grown there or if it was transported there. And Thestral Knight's comment was not only upvoted four times, but also, I thought, had some great use of uh, other books as kind of citations for why they thought this might be the case, but they said, about the Wamping Willow, I imagine it was planted and grown on site. Hagrid would probably be happy to take care of it, and we know he could grow pumpkins to boulder size <laughs> and grow the Triwizard maze hedges from low wall size to around 20 feet high in a month. Moving it seems very cumbersome and dangerous over large distances. On a side note, do we know if all Whomping Willows can be immobilized by pressing a knot? or if that's just the Hogwarts one.
2: Do we know that other Whomping Willows exist?
1: Yes, because uh, oh. Snape says that they did damage to a valuable Whomping Willow, not the Whomping Willow. Yeah, I, I think um, Thestral Knight actually cited that as well
0: um, as the discussion went on on the main site. Um, so it does, yeah. And 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 at Lockhart, uh, they also cited that in Book 2, Lockhart uh, is giving sprout instructions on how to doctor a Whomping Willow. So it does seem oh, to be something right. that's a well-known plant. Uh, the The fact that it's valuable kind of suggests that Whomping Willows are a little rarer, or that this particular one is special because it has grown so large.
2: Maybe they're just really hard to care for, and that's why they're valuable and rare.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They grow, especially I would they grow imagine. Age.
2: I mean, if you try to take care of it and it's hitting you and stuff, it's probably hard to make it feel better. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think because the, we kind of thought too, that the possibility of transportation might work because Allison pointed out that if it was, if it was, uh, moved out of the ground and levitated, that if it was, if it was taken out by the roots and had nothing to like, kind of no nutrients that it might just stop moving.
1: But hmm. I feel like the willow would actually put up more of a fight if that was the case. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, I prefer, I forget who commented uh, this, but I loved it, that the Ministry probably just had an intern sitting on the willow, immobilizing it as they moved it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible job. It's the worst job
0: ever. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> but I did like also the, that uh, Thestral Knight mentioned that the examples of Hagrid growing the pumpkins and the wizard maze... Um, Mm. because I think that was, uh, important to know that we've seen plants that have grown at an exponential rate. Um, I feel like
2: Hagrid magicked those, but that's just me.
0: He did. He definitely magicked Mm -hmm. the, he definitely magicked the pumpkins. I don't know if he was in charge of the hedge maze. Um,
1: I can't remember if they even said necessarily who that was. Um, Uh, I don't think it was Hagrid. I think he was the one responsible for putting horrible things inside the maze. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. But it seemed like it was, like, ministry officials or Hogwarts
0: staff who were in, in charge right. of the Right,
2: right. So it had to be somebody who wouldn't blab the secrets on how to solve it. So yeah. definitely, right. probably not Hagrid.
1: not someone who was allowed to use magic, because, like, mm-hmm. this isn't right. just Dumbledore's oversight, this is a whole International Confederation of Wizards thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Do you think there is, like, a Whomping Willow Forest somewhere? <laughs> Where is there, in? there- oh,
0: That sounds terrible—a whole forest full of them. Well, if there is, nobody's explored it and um, lived. And to maybe talk when about there are it. saplings,
3: they're like nice and kind of cute in a hugger sort of way. Maybe they're like so you would maybe travel down there and get a little sapling while well, it's still just a bit kind of wobbly, but not murderous, and then.
0: i like that idea i like the idea that you could get it when it's small and then yeah if we can grow plants that fast maybe that is i also like the question too about whether the the stopping the willow with a knot is just something that this particular tree does because theoretically i would say that like it seems to be something that would be across all willows but it's also not guaranteed that every willow like how would you know Does every willow
1: grow a knot like that that's, like, noticeable? I mean, maybe not exactly like that, but I feel like every willow has to have, like, a knot somewhere to immobilize it, because otherwise, you know, how does one deal with the willow? Um, Mm -hmm. That said, I feel like that could be a very interesting job, you know, finding the knots in each of these willows.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, because there's probably multiple knots in one willow, too, so...
2: Well, I it, maybe if you have it in your yard and it's, you know, your tree, you form a relationship with the willow, so you don't need a knot. Oh, the, that's the Hogwarts, nice The Hogwarts one doesn't have a relationship with anybody because it's not
3: owned by a well, person. Well, that's because whenever somebody comes near it, it kills it. And yeah. It's <laughs> hard to form a relationship with somebody like that. It's you true. know,
1: poor Davy Gudgeon tried to form a relationship with it and nearly lost an eye. So, yeah, yeah. are you saying Ev that the Willow just wants a hug?
3: Maybe. <laughs> well, may, maybe maybe it misses Hagrid. Hagrid doesn't no, have I, time I, for the Willow anymore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I would I think too. It Chamber of Secrets shows us too that Sprout cares for the Willow to mm-hmm. some degree because well, she's maybe it misses this
3: Forest. And it's all Womping Willow
1: friends. Mm. Yeah, maybe it had a relationship with another Willow and you know they were torn asunder. (laughs) Alright, cool. Well we've written a pretty lengthy Womping Willow (laughs) (laughs) fanfiction. Yeah.
0: (laughs) <laughs> so, I think we'll leave, leave that discussion there. But, listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the Wamping Willow. Um, and you can head over back to the main site at uh, com and comment on Thestral Knight's comment. Um, but also, we just want to make sure and give a quick shout out, Maxima, to all of the rest of the participants um, who had uh, left comments up to this point when we were recording. And that was Arthur Dent, Davy B. Jones, 999, The Desk Pigwigin, Griffin Prefect. <laughs> HP boy 13. Oh, that's just you, Irvin. I have to. Yeah, that is your last
2: (laughs) shout out, Max. That's
0: your last shout out. You don't get that No,
1: no, I got to keep getting them. Got to keep getting that high.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Jessica, Puff the Magic Raven, Raven Puff, Remus Lucy, and Spinners. And thank you all for commenting and leaving your thoughts on the episode. And like we always say, the discussion does not end just because that episode is over. Head over to alohamarpodcast.com and join in on the comments.
2: And since Ev brought up something that Hagrid doesn't have time for, I wanted to bring up something else that Hagrid does not have time for. (laughs)
1: How is
2: that? That's good, right? That is Uh, the
1: best transition I've ever heard.
2: Guys, it's deodorant. Hagrid does not have time for deodorant, okay? And our show today, as you heard at the top, is sponsored by Native Deodorant. And... If you know anything about me, if you follow me on Twitter or whatever, I am on a journey, on a path to become um, more green, more healthy, more conscious, more all of the things. And I had been thinking about going with a natural deodorant for a while. But I was that girl in high school and in college who wore prescription deodorant. So like girls got sweat, right? And so I was really hesitant about it and so when I found out that native wanted to be a sponsor of the show I was like yeah uh we're totally in and so they sent us a sample and I tried it and I gotta tell you guys I love it okay so it's formulated it has no aluminum which as you guys know can be pretty bad for your body no parabens and also no talc um all of the ingredients can be found in nature everything is natural so they use things like coconut oil which is really great they're made in the U.S. very important. No animal testing either, which for me is a, is a really big one, no animal testing. And so they have a whole bunch of scents and everything, too. Uh, the one that I got is the coconut vanilla, and it smells so good. I put it on, and I feel like I'm on the beach in Hawaii, which I've never been to, but I, I want to be there. And my deodorant makes me feel like I'm there. I, I don't know. I know that sounds crazy, but it smells really, really good. Very natural and fresh. Uh, Irvin, you got... um. Like a lavender and rose one or something, right?
1: Uh, yeah, I did get the lavender and rose one, and it also smells really, really good. Um, it didn't quite take me to Hawaii, but you know, we'll we'll see how it goes. You
2: know, so I've been using it for the last uh, like week, week and a half, and it's been great. I absolutely love it. I feel um, uh, healthier, <laughs> I guess. Um, they feel cleaner, fresher, and I smell like Hawaii all day. There's literally nothing wrong with it. Uh, could not recommend it more. And if you guys want to get your own sample, try it out. Head over to nativedeodorant.com and get 20% off your first purchase with the promo code OPEN. Again, that's Native, N-A-T-I-V-E Deodorant.com. Code OPEN gets you 20% off your first purchase. And you can smell way better than Hagrid. I feel like they comment on that multiple times. So <laughs> go give it a try. And, um... Let's meet up in Hawaii. I don't know. I want to go to Hawaii now, guys.
1: <laughs> I'm down. Yeah, Aloha, More field trip.
2: Uh yeah, live show in Hawaii. Who's in?
0: Yes. I like that, I like that your deodorant inspired you so much.
2: It. It. Did. I, honestly, I've <laughs> wanted to go to Hawaii for a long time. But yes, the deodorant did inspire me. So
0: <laughs> three turns should do it. Chapter revisit. Chapter 5 Tamadai Fallen Warrior Tomato.
2: In the aftermath of the Seven Potters' battle, Harry and Hagrid are tended to by a very practiced Ted Tonks, who we learn is married to Sirius's favorite cousin, Andromeda Black. After many bended bones, Harry and Hagrid make their way to the burrow to find that no one has yet to return. Friends, family, and fighters slowly appear over the course of the evening, fraught with injuries... Stories of triumph, exclamations to a previously unrecognized deity, and tales of a defeat drenched in sorrow. The chapter ends, as many do, with Harry having a Voldy vision and Hermione dropping humor like no one else can.
1: That was a pretty epic summary. Well done.
2: (sighs) You know, (laughs) I have a lot of fun writing them. I can't... I, I, I don't know. They're fun. I try to make them... I don't know. Um vague and specific at the same time. I
1: don't know. Yeah, I don't know. The whole chapter just sounds so badass now. Well,
2: that's because it is. I mean, this is a really fun chapter.
1: It is such a good chapter. Like, I... Oh, I was reading it and it's so elegant. Like it pretty much introduces the character arcs of, like, everyone in Deathly Hallows and hits up, like, all the subplots and introduces characters and kills characters. This chapter really has a little bit of everything for the discerning Potter fan.
2: Mm-hmm. It does.
1: And so, uh, the chapter takes place, uh, 21 years ago next week on July 27th, 1997, between 9.30 and 10.30 p.m. Um, British time, I guess. Right. Uh,
2: wow. 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 I just, you know, I know that these things happened a long time ago, but when I hear that it was, like, 21 years ago, it's just a long time.
1: Yeah. Kat, this chapter is old enough to drink, which is good, because there is a lot of drinking that goes on in this it's chapter. It's been drinking yes. for
2: three years in the UK, technically.
1: How, how fitting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I think we can start with our obligatory genius moment. Okay. So... I wrote an essay a million years ago about the potions riddle in Sorcerer's Stone, and how that pattern applies to each of the battles that Harry and Voldemort face, uh, face each other in.
2: I remember so, that article. That was good. Oh, thanks
1: very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that was one of the ones where I started, and I just <laughs> kept finding these patterns. I'm like, oh my god. So anyway... So the potions riddle in Sorcerer's Stone, uh, listeners, if you don't remember, stated that there were three killers waiting hidden in line, the poisons, two that only held nettle wine, so the harmless ones, one that will move you forward to danger, and one that will move you backwards. So the three poisons here, out of the seven potters, are the ones where Voldemort was directly involved. So that would be Mundungus as Harry and Mad-Eye Moody, followed by Hermione as Harry and Kingsley, and then Harry as Harry with Hagrid. Uh The two of the Potters had relatively uneventful chases, as in we don't really hear anything that happened to them. That would be Fred as Harry with Arthur and Fleur as Harry with Bill. The forward potion is the one that represents the forward momentum for Harry's cause. So Ronus Harry and Tonks are the only ones who are confirmed to have dealt damage through to the Death Eaters. Ron stunned one of the Death Eaters, who may have fallen to his death, we don't know, but probably. And they, quote, definitely injured Rodolphus, which we're gonna get into a bit later. And the backwards potion will be the setback, the Harry who was actually injured in the chase, would be George's Harry who lost an ear. R.I.P. George's ear. (laughs) Wow. That's a really interesting idea that
0: why would it be this particular moment in sorcerer's stone that is reflective of of b- the battles because I'm I'm almost thinking too about like if you were to do something that maybe would be a foreshadowing of battle it would have been the chess scene
1: not the Oh that chess too. scene. Oh so the chess scene foreshadows sort of the story arc as a whole. Like, the chess mm. scene just hits up the major beats in, like, the big overarching story. But the individual battles um, can are reflected in the potions. So uh, the way I always heard it was that Joe Rowling didn't know if she was going to get to write all seven books, because, mm-hmm. like, she was writing this, like, epically long middle-grade fantasy that, like, no one would read, perhaps. So she just sort of, like told the entire story buried within the climax of Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, and that's why, like, the seven obstacles guarding the Sorcerer's Stone correspond to the seven books. That's why the chess match tells the overarching story. And that's why the potions riddle tells the story of the each individual battle. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Oh, it's amazing. Like, pretty much the climax of Sorcerer's Stone just tells you everything you need to know about the entire series. It's so cool. Wow.
2: I feel very stupid. I mean, I read that article, and I remember that.
1: <laughs> well, then, I think you're smart if you are reading good articles like that. So there we go.
2: I mean, and they're published on MuggleNet, so, you know.
1: Exactly. <laughs> a very discerning Harry Potter fan site.
2: Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, that article is under, uh, for those who are wondering, it's under the Three Broomsticks section in the Quibbler over on MuggleNet. So yeah. check it
1: out. Uh, y'all may have to click back a bit, because there's a lot of articles there.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: (laughs) Anyway, so moving on from our obligatory genius, uh, let's talk about Andromeda Black Tonks and Ted Tonks, because this is the first time we meet them, and I find them so interesting.
2: But is it the first time we meet Ted? I'm just kidding.
1: (laughs) Well... It may not be, because a popular fandom theory back in the day is that the newscaster in the very first chapter of Sorcerer Stone, whose Mm -hmm. name is Ted, is actually Ted Tonks. Because that newscaster allows himself a bit of a grin when talking about owls, so maybe Mm -hmm. it's Ted Tonks and he just knows what's up. Mm -hmm. We talked about that when we revisited
0: that chapter, um, when we did our chapter one revisits. Um, and wasn't it, was it Ted, the one who, cause the, I thought it was the other one who gave himself a smile and not Ted, but there was, oh, I don't the remember. The other one's last
2: name was MacGuffin, right?
0: Yes. Jim which Guff, is it's hilarious. It's MacGuffin, right? Yeah. Yeah. So one of, but yeah, one of them definitely smirks. We had wondered if one of them was, that, this seems like just such a weird thing for Ted Tonks to be doing in his spare time. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. I mean, I mean,
2: but 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 it makes sense to have somebody in the wizarding community in the muggle news who can, you know, keep a tab on Well, links.
1: yeah, but like in the weather
2: department.
1: Yeah, that's like that's, I, I feel like you'd want the wizard in current events, being like, "Nothing to see here. Never mind. No, all those suspicious deaths are definitely a hurricane."
3: <laughs> but <laughs> hurricane—that's weather. But it's probably easier to get it into, into something like weather than into something that's a bit more prestigious. So maybe that's where they place, you know, wizards who maybe don't have a job at the ministry or something, but they can just keep an eye on what muggles are up to. Because, I mean, weather is kind of a um, harmless thing to place somebody in.
1: I don't know. I always got the sense that our weather people are kind of prestigious as in they have to, like, be, like, legit meteorologists who, like, know what they're really? talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm getting this from watching Ginger Z on Dancing with the Stars. So, like, I only know so much on the topic. <laughs> but that was the impression I got.
2: I don't know. The weatherman in town is, like, a, a, a Class C celebrity. So... It's like if you run into if you run into Tom in the in the grocery store. Oh, it's Tom, the
3: weatherman. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's a wizard. So it'd
3: be a bit like a Groundhog Day. He was the weatherman, wasn't he? Yes, the... he was. So I don't think he was a, a an actual meteorologist or anything.
2: But I subscribe to this theory. I think it's Ted. I like. Yeah, it.
1: I mean, I don't, but I think it's a fun theory.
2: Nobody has given me any evidence as to why it couldn't could not be him. So.
3: Because we don't know what he does. right? It's never mentioned what he actually does. I mean, he has to work somewhere. And he's not at the ministry, or they probably would have said something to that effect.
1: Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Uh, So, Ev, uh, you had a great point to start us off here.
3: Um, Well, now, after your uh, moment of genius, that feels extra silly. But I've been (laughs) doing... uh,
1: (laughs) Not my moment of genius, all Joe Rowlings.
3: Okay, so I'm moving on from the genius to uh, something else. Uh, I've been re-watching a few different things recently. One of them was Back to the Future. And as I was rereading this chapter, I was just thinking of uh, Harry waking up in an unfamiliar room and that recurring moment that happens in every single Back to the Future film where uh, the main character wakes up and he's like, oh, I had this horrible dream. And I just picture Harry being like that. I had this horrible dream. I dreamt that I was a wizard. And this this other guy, Voldemort, was chasing me and trying to kill me. And then, you know, he's being woken up and saying, don't worry, you're safe and sound in, I don't know, four-proven drive and we still hate you.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's, you're basically summarizing how people thought Deathly Hallows might end.
3: <laughs> it was all a dream.
0: Yeah, they that's were, true. there was a lot of pondering if it was the, it's all a dream. I mean, Harry has this happen to him. Quite a few times throughout the series, where he gets knocked out. No.
3: He, he's usually or... in the uh, hospital window.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and yet after all those times, we never hear what color underwear he has, which I feel like is a glaring oversight.
3: <laughs> so, do you think he's wearing a wizarding underwear from like Madame Malkins? Uh, oh yeah, or, or like a... I think
2: I
1: think Gryffindor boxers for sure.
3: Yeah, it must be it. <laughs> it's,
1: it's
0: merchandising's getting really out of control. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that must
2: be a Back to the Future thing, because I don't understand that reference.
0: That is definitely a Back to the Future thing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Eric has already berated me for it, so nobody come at me about Back to the Future.
1: Shame.
2: They are all on my DVR. I just have to find... I want to sit down and watch all three of them. I don't want to, like, split them up. I just have to find, like, ten hours to sit down and watch all three.
1: No, they're movies from the 80s, so they're, like, an hour and a half long. They're not, like, the three-hour epics we used to. Cool, like,
2: six or seven hours, then, still.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Oh, my God, talk of Wizarding Underwear. I was in Hot Topic. They have, like, your house boxer briefs now. So, yeah, like, Wizarding Underwear is now a thing.
3: (sighs) (laughs) Okay. So, So this is my contribution done, pretty much. The wizard.
2: <laughs>
1: can go now. <laughs> Thank you for your That service. is
2: not a terrible legacy to be left with. <laughs> Whereas, I'm just telling you, there are worse. So wear it proudly. <laughs> <laughs> <Well> <laughs> no <done>.
3: unintended. <laughs> I'll look into uh, getting myself some uh, Gryffindor underwear after this episode. There you go. Mm-hmm. But yes, please,
2: uh Urban, let's talk about Andromeda.
1: Oh my god, let's just keep talking about Andromeda because I find her so fascinating because she was a Slytherin. Like, cause Sirius says in Noble and Most Ancient House of Black that um his entire family was Slytherins, which must include Andromeda. So how does a Slytherin from the House of Black end up marrying a muggleborn?
2: She's not a piece of
1: poop. I know, but I, I wanna know about that journey of hers. Like, I just want to know more.
2: I don't know. Careful uh, what you
1: uh, wish for. I, uh, uh yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've always assumed that she was a really strong character, because by the end of this book, she's literally, her husband is dead, her daughter is dead, her son-in-law is dead. She just has Teddy mm-hmm. by the end of this, and even, well, sure, she probably doesn't talk to Narcissa, but Bellatrix is dead.
1: Wait, don't you don't think, think she talks to Narcissa? I, I like to think that they, you know, made up and, Maybe you know, were on... Maybe after the
2: fact, but, like... Yeah, they
1: were on cordial terms, you know, sort of the way Harry and Dudley are.
2: Sure. After a while. But, yeah, I mean, by the end of this book, she is literally left with, quote-unquote, just Teddy.
1: Yeah. I really, really hope that, like, the Potter Weasleys just, like, took her in and, you know, invited her to all the family holidays with Teddy, because she's such a tragic character.
2: I could yeah. see that.
1: Yeah. It's, it's interesting that Andromeda does, uh, we know
0: from later on, become this tragic character because she's kind of given nothing in her reveal. Like she's really, I feel like she's kind of a disappointing reveal because mostly it's just that Harry's just like, Oh my God, it's Beltrick. Oh, no. Oh God. I'm so sorry. I need to get out of here as fast as I can. And that's like, (laughs) that's, that's his impression of (laughs) Andromeda. So is this just huge social faux pas, and then he leaves. Um, so,
1: I don't and she's, like, clearly stung by that, too. Uh,
0: do we
2: think...
1: I, we- I mean, I, I'd be kind of pissed if, like, I risked life and limb and my family's safety for this kid, who then shows up and he's all like, YOU! Yeah.
3: But <laughs> it's probably not the first time it happened to her, given that, I mean, they clearly have a strong family resemblance. Um, mm mm-hmm. She's probably yeah. used to it, even though she probably quietly hates it quite a lot.
2: Do we think that um, maybe Joe had other plans for her to pop up again? Why would we be introduced just to be sort of have her left behind? Uh, I,
1: I think it might be sort of the cost of war thing. Like the fact that we're supposed to pay attention to her tragedy of how she lost her entire family. mm um and also she may have just wanted to complete the set, because like the five black cousins, Sirius, Regulus, Bellatrix, Narcissa, and Andromeda, like the other four are so so pivotal in the war against Voldemort that I feel like we just needed to meet the fifth one.
2: Do we hear we hear about Andromeda before this moment, right?
1: Yeah, uh, we do. Like a little For in some. passing, Sirius Black says she's his favorite cousin, and then Tonks is like, my fool of a mother called me Nymphedora. That's right. Yeah, I I I think um
0: Andromeda might be one of those things that was planted early on as like a potential thing for rolling to use, and then by Hallows, you know, I'm sure she had and this probably happened throughout the series, but especially towards the end where she had that realization that logically you would have by this point that there's only so many new characters that she can introduce and use heavily in her plot. Yeah. Um, and I think Andromeda just might have been a uh, kind of a fallout of that, where she just didn't fit anywhere else.
1: I also thought that Andromeda could be a very interesting parallel to Walburga Black, Sirius's mother, because uh, Walburga sort of had the same thing where she lost her entire family all in sort of the same few years, because pretty much. Sirius runs away, then Regulus disappears, then her husband dies, and then Bellatrix is incarcerated, and so within, like, five years, she literally loses her entire family, and so that's how she ends up going batty, and is the crazy, insane portrait version that we meet her as. So I think uh Andromeda's sort of a parallel to that, but we have to hope that it worked out better for Andromeda because she'd have Teddy, and because she'd... God willing, have a support system.
2: You cosplay her, don't you? I
1: I do cosplay Mrs. Black. I bring her to every convention, and I wait until, like, day three or four when everyone's been partying and everyone's had a lot to drink, and then I bring her out first thing in the morning to breakfast at 8 a.m., and then just start screaming insults at people at the top of my lungs. It's a crowd favorite.
2: I thought that was her.
1: Yep, yep, the one and only. That that is my number one favorite Harry Potter cosplay that I do. She is so much fun.
2: I would ag- I would agree. Um, Ev, you do have a re- you have a good point here too um, about why you think Andromeda was you know sort of brought up in this moment.
3: Well, actually, I've just remembered something else about Andromeda because um, as far as I remember, I haven't looked it up recently, but um, the three black sisters they were based on um, three sisters from I think the time of the Second World War that I think um, Jessica Mitford was one of them that Rowling was quite uh, fond of and she named her first daughter after her. So she was like an activist Hmm. or something like that. And then the second one of the sisters was uh, really into the Nazi stuff. And the third one, I can't remember. But I think that might be why it's the set of three. And they're meant to sort of parallel those. Hmm. And another thing that just occurred to me as well, uh, is that I wonder if Andromeda is sort of a up to echo, um, Augusta Longbottom and Neville, because at the end of the war, you would have Andromeda raising Teddy. Hmm. Uh, so, um, because he's kind of an, you know, the, the battle was meant to leave an orphan and that's why Rowling killed off, uh, Lupin and Tonks. So I wonder if that's kind of a parallel to that. But yeah, well, another thing that I was going to say originally before all of this came into my head is what we're talking about, it was that um, um, is Andromeda a stand-in for all the people who do not support Voldemort but are not an active players in the resistance? So they're, so I don't think she is... Um, she, It's not mentioned that she's explicitly in the Order, but mm. she supports the Order... In so far as um, letting use her house as a safe house and obviously, well, her daughter is an ore. And, you know, um, about her and Narcissa after the war, I don't think they would really make up. I think she probably was kind of quietly estranged from her original family uh, once she married Ted and just sort of left it behind. And that's why um, they have this kind of a average wizarding middle class existence. So that would be my take on that.
1: Right. Well, we know Andromeda was estranged from the family because she was blasted off the family tree and everything. Yeah. But Mm. I I like to think that after the dust settled, and once Narcissa and Andromeda realized they really don't have many people other than each other, um, that they're pretty much all that's left of the family, uh, I, I think they'd strike up a cordial relationship, but that could just be wishful thinking on my part.
3: I think they probably would if Lucius wasn't involved, but since still since he's still around, probably not so much. Yeah. I, I don't think either say, of
1: the sisters gives Lucius a second thought.
3: You think so?
0: Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't think that's the case, actually, based on the Malfoy episode that we just had, that the Malfoys are really like close-knit with each other, and mm. I, I don't think they're very interested in... Like, I, I think that's... Like Narcissa, regardless of what her relationship with Lucius is at this point after Hallows, she's definitely just all wrapped up in Draco and taking care of him. I don't think she would have. And we find out, too, from the Malfoy piece that the Malf that Lucius and Narcissa are still, while they have, you know, gone through this large experience and have been changed a bit from it, they're still kind of not so pleasant towards, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> towards muggleborns so uh that hasn't really changed much
1: for them.
2: Is there a term for that? Obviously it's not race. Is it bloodist? Like what would we call them?
1: Uh, bloodist. Blood supremacist?
2: Okay.
1: Yeah, that would probably be. That works. Yep.
2: I think it's interesting to think about though Andromeda as a stand-in for, you know, sort of those supporters of the resistance but the people who are removed from it um there are probably quite a lot of people like andromeda out in the wizarding world i would imagine you know sort of like there is in the mogul world well that's
0: kind of like how really the the microcosm you get at hogwarts is too like the students aren't all involved in harry's day-to-day insane life Mm
4: -hmm. but
0: they They are are. all like so many of them are on his side and once we get to the battle of hogwarts and the students have been put through what they've been through they all Are supporters, even if they don't even know Harry necessarily. Yeah.
1: Well, and it's not that Andromeda's completely removed from the war because you know, like she does open up her house to the Order, and she and Ted are tortured for it after the Ministry falls a few chapters from now. Yeah, and the the thing too is that this is kind of
0: part of that piece that I think Harry has to learn in this chapter, and he begins kind of. Actively learning in the Seven Potters and through this chapter is that you know people aren't just doing this for him. Like everybody individually has some stake in this in this war, and in Andromeda's case, it's the well-being and safety, especially not only of her but mainly of her husband, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that that their relationship in Voldemort's regime is looked down upon, and that they are targets and that her daughter is a target now because of Lupin, um, and their relation to Bellatrix. And so, yeah, there's, there's, I think there's a lot that's keeping Andromeda invested and is a mirror for a lot of people, a lot of wizards and witches at this time.
2: Um, there was a really fun moment in, and Ev, I noticed that you noted this too. Um, it's funny. We copied the like exact same stuff off <laughs> of the Wikipedia, but there's a moment where, um, Hagrid, like, runs through the room and he knocks over tables, um, and an Aspidistra, which is a plant. And I thought it was really funny because we were talking about before how maybe that newscaster is Ted. And so Evan and I both looked up what an Aspidistra was. And, it, you know, it's like a common British houseplant, but there was this little note that says the Aspidistra Was a code name of a very powerful British radio transmitter used for propaganda and deception purposes against Nazi Germany during World War II. I think, like theory confirmed, guys.
1: That is so cool. Uh
3: huh. Yeah. Well, I mostly, I mostly looked it up because I thought uh, it might be something like uh, an instrument, like an astrolabe, but didn't realize it was a plant. Oh. Okay. And it turned out it's, it's like an office type. Plant, kind of really boring looking, and apparently it's also a symbol of dull middle class respectability. Yep. There you go.
0: Well, I think that's it's worth it is worth like looking at the symbolism that because Rowling doesn't note things like that for no reason or just because it's she doesn't usually do things just because they're aesthetic. Like she could have chosen any plant.
2: Yeah, and plant and she and plants are always something she points out. She points out a lot of plants in the series
0: Mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah, she talks a lot about that actually. Uh, what's really cool is if you kind of explore the, the the history of magic exhibit and the books that were tied to that. She talks a lot about how the neat thing about plants in Harry Potter is that a lot of them are actually real, and that like there's a there's a element of magic that's just that actually is in the real world and that you can access it and it is plants and. So she's, she has, she sets a high value on plants for that reason. I think it, because it kind of helps bridge the gap between the muggle and wizarding world for her. But mm-hmm. as like that with this kind of symbolism, I think that's very important considering how many world war two Nazi Germany parallels there are
4: mm-hmm. in,
0: in, the whole series, but especially by the time we are at war in deathly hallows. Um, I think that like fits perfectly with that idea
2: it it just I, when i when i read things and when i discover things like that it just i just sort of sit there for a moment and i just go no wonder it takes so long to write a book when you are a genius like that i mean <laughs> because you're putting in so much thought into the type of plant that hagrid knocks over like
1: yeah there it, there's a reason that she wasn't churning these out you know 6 months apart
2: right it, it just it just blows my mind every time that's all.
1: Can
0: we talk about Ev's point here about what Ted says at the end? Can Absolutely. Just, I think this is a really interesting line, actually.
3: I haven't noticed it the last time I was reading, but as I was kind of trying to go through it sentence by se- sentence, this one just stood out to me because uh, Ted Tong said says to Harry just beho- before Harry goes, the port key is there if you want to take it. So, And I was wondering, it's just a strange thing to say if you want to take it. So Hypothetically speaking, Harry says, "No, I don't want to take it." So, w- could he have stayed there, or was uh, Ted just being polite, or what was it about at all?
1: Um, and I come down on the side of being polite because, uh, keep in mind, this is his first time meeting the Chosen One. Um, so, you know, if the Messiah shows up on your doorstep, like you're gonna want to be polite. You're not gonna just be like, "All right, here's the port key, GTFO." Like, peace out. <laughs>
3: But then people have heard about him from Tonks a lot, so he's probably a bit less um, chosen one from that point of view.
1: Well, yeah, but even the people who know him well are a little bit in awe because if you remember um, a couple chapters from now in The Goblin's Revenge, uh, when Dean Thomas is talking about him, even Dean has a little bit of awe in his voice. He's like, you know, Harry Potter, I reckon he's the chosen one. I reckon he's the real deal. So if that's coming from someone who's literally like slept in Harry's dorm for seven years, you know, I feel like just because your daughter knows him doesn't really lessen the awe. I wondered if it was actually kind of this a bit of
0: kind of confused forlorn list of not really knowing what to do at this point, because on top of Harry just like being very rude to his wife, which he points out by being like, hey, that's my wife you're talking to. Um, but also he's just kind of had the crash like the crushing news laid on him that the plan didn't go as they thought it would that Voldemort mm. was there and his daughter is in imminent danger and that seems to immediately throw both Andromeda and Ted out of sorts from where they were when they were like when from when Harry was talking to Ted on the couch cuz Ted was before that Ted is just kind of pretty chipper and just like well that worked not pretty, but it worked. And, and then Harry's just like, Voldemort is, like, up in the sky right above this house. And he's like, oh, that's not good. And, <laughs> and yeah, like, like and, oh, no, and it just it didn't work at all. And, yeah, that's, I think, I think Ted's just kind of thrown for a loop. Like, I guess Harry could have stayed technically because it's a safe house. And Ted could have sent word to the borough that they were there. If Harry had chosen to stay.
2: Do do you think maybe, so uh, listening to you talk about this, I'm getting maybe a little bit of a vibe that Ted was sort of like, I want to do something. I wonder if this is slightly incendiary, like him trying to be like, well, it's there if you want to take it. But maybe if you don't want to take it, let's go kick some ass. I don't know. It, right,
1: I, like we make our last stand here, we go out, we take on Voldemort single handed. Uh,
2: maybe because Ted like looks up at the ceiling, right? like, looks up and... Or is that Harry? I know somebody looks up. It. I think it's, it's Ted. Ted. Yeah, it's Ted. And so I'm just wondering, like, is he thinking, what can I do in this moment? Maybe I can get the Potter boy to stay. Maybe something will happen. Maybe I can protect Dora. You know, I, I maybe not, but I don't know. Just listening to Michael yeah. talk about it sort of gave me that vibe.
3: I guess maybe he's thinking, well, if... Uh... Part of the plan was compromised. What if another part of the plan is compromised and something else is at the end of that port key? Mm-hmm. Maybe something else has gone wrong. So maybe it's safer to just not do anything.
1: Yeah, that's
0: a great transition into when we actually get to the Burrow and what happens next with everybody.
1: Yeah. So uh, Harry takes the port key, and then uh, it's essentially this waiting game at the Burrow of just people coming um, and sort of you know, telling what happened and so on. And just the atmosphere that Rowling creates in this chapter is so good because everyone is so tense and so worried. And there's really the sense of, like, you don't know who made it. You don't know who died in this battle. Mm-hmm. And everyone except Harry just seems to have, like, a checklist going in their mind of, like, you know, who's still not there, who's arriving next. And so it's clear that someone betrayed part of the plan because Voldemort wasn't supposed to know that Harry was being moved. So then, as soon as Lupin shows up, they all essentially start doing this identify yourself thing, Um, which is kind of uh interesting because in Half-Blood Prince, the Ministry advised everyone to have like security questions with your friends and loved ones, and both Harry and Dumbledore are just like, Pfft, yeah, whatever. You know, raspberry jam. I'm all about it. Uh, but <laughs> here we get to see it being used for real. Uh, because Lupin and Kingsley both take it very, very seriously. Um, and we just get so many good character moments. So the first one is when Lupin uh, shows up. And the first thing he does is drag Harry and being like, what was on the desk four years ago when like I taught you whatever? And... Harry, thankfully, actually remembers what was on his teacher's desk four years ago and says it was a Grindylow, which is impressive and kind of not like Harry. Uh, it's more Hermione's forte to recognize things and just have complete recollection of her uh, school years.
2: Sure, but that was in the DADA classroom. He remembers that. Well,
1: okay. I think the
0: thing, like, I just talked about this on the last episode of Speak Beastie yeah, I was on, but the 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 thing with harry that i think people underestimate him about him is that he is observant he's not always correct in when he puts the pieces together but he is observant because that rolling i think has to give him that trait because as people have said before harry potter is actually a mystery novel wrapped up as a fantasy and <laughs> harry is the main detective um like Hermione obviously is the one who pieces things together correctly more often than Harry does, but, and, or she is the, she has the final piece of the puzzle more often too. Mm. Um, But Harry is observant because he has to be as the main detective of the story. So I think that the, and, and I think with that combined with the things that Harry loves about defense against the dark arts and how much he valued his time with Lupin like, I know, like, I, as a reader, did, I
1: actually did remember that it was a Grindy Low before I read it. Um, right, so did I, but I've also gone over Harry's teenage years, like, 12 times, for which sure. he presumably and yeah, hasn't.
0: No, I've read it, too, like, and I've read it a lot, too, but I think, like, part of that was, because, like, for me, like, I value that moment when Harry visits Lupin's office for the first time, and I think Harry would, because that was a pretty, you know, big moment in his third year. Visiting Lupin.
3: I think he's observant when he cares. Mm-hmm. So when he cares about something, he does well. Hermione uh, yeah. is more kind of general purpose observant. Um, yeah. And yeah. So I well, think yeah. That's probably where the difference is.
0: No, there's a great example of that in Order of the Phoenix when Hermione calls out Ron and Harry for not listening to Umbridge's speech um, at the beginning because she notes, things that are not just important personally to her, but important on a grander scale, um, or important that she thinks can be banked for future use. Whereas I think you're right, uh, Harry cares, uh, Harry cares to observe when there are things that he's deeply invested in. Yeah.
1: I find that Harry is actually much better at recollection. Like, if you show him something, he'll be like, oh yeah, that looks like that other thing that I saw five years ago, which is very good with horker, because he's like, that locket looks like the locket we threw out, and that diadem looks like the one in the Room of Requirement. Mm. Uh, so I feel like that, that's more his forte, um, and what he relies on as the detective. Mm. Um, but anyway, so also about the Lupin encounter, So, uh, and this point comes from Josie Kearns at the Harry Potter Companion, which is a fantastic website if uh, you guys haven't checked it out. But she points out that... Um, uh, she's essentially wondering why Lupin was so like abrupt with Harry, um, and lays out his thought process. So Lupin was aware that the death that the Order had been betrayed. Yet, based on the Death Eaters' reaction, they weren't expecting seven Harrys. Like that key part of the plot uh, wasn't betrayed to the Death Eaters, um, and so that's important because there's only one person in the entire world who knew the day Harry was being moved, but didn't know about the seven Potters part of the plan, and that's Harry himself. So the likeliest explanation for how Voldemort had that information is that they got it directly from Harry, which is a terrifying prospect, because if Voldemort got to Harry, that's sort of their entire war effort, you know, done. Uh, so it, it really must have taken incredible bravery for Lupin to, you know, catch that portkey back to the burrow and sort of try to figure out what's going on with Harry and with everyone else, knowing that Harry could have been compromised. Did,
0: does Lupin... Did, did, is it public knowledge outside of Ron and Hermione that Harry has a connection with Voldemort?
4: because hmm. no. I, Sir,
0: I know Sirius knew that Harry's scar would hurt, but I don't know if he ever actually ended up... I can't recall if he ever actually finds out that that's definitively because his connection with Voldemort exists.
1: Uh, so actually, th- the order, the order knows about it because at Saint Mungo's, in Order of the Phoenix, they mm-hmm. discuss the connection between Harry and Voldemort. So they, that's right. So they do know,
2: right? I know, obviously, they don't know what it is or why it is, but they know that it exists.
0: Well, and that could be a way that that information got, like, it, or that Voldemort could have gotten some control of Harry or done something to Harry. So. I mean, it makes sense that Lupin, like, uh, you know, pe- there's, there's this feeling I think from as like you're th- you're looking at it through Harry's perspective of Harry's never seen Lupin like this, and on top of this, we the audience have never seen Lupin like this. But I don't think he's acting unreasonably in this chapter. He's being pretty on it because, like, it's kind of funny that like, and he to a degree points this out, but. Harry is so wrapped up in, you know, and and reasonably so in wondering what happened to everybody, that he doesn't really think about the like kind of the war strategy consequences of what is happening here. Um, because Harry didn't think of this at all. Um, in this situation,
2: that people and, could die, or that-
0: no, that people could have been that somebody like that there was maybe somebody she- who leaked the information.
2: Sure.
0: um, Or that that somebody who shows up is not who they appear to be. Like, Polyjuice Potion. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. like a thing in this world. He used it in his second year. Like, it's just, yeah, it's funny that Harry's not thinking that way, but I can see why from Harry's perspective. But I think that it's a good thing that people like Lupin and Kingsley are in charge of this operation. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And... (laughs) Here we get to sort of see Lupin becoming a leader of the Order of the Phoenix, and he is very, very much a reluctance leader. Like, I think one of the reasons he's so on edge is that with Moody dead, like, he's just that much closer to just being the leader of the Order of the Phoenix, and Lupin's not about that. Yeah,
0: that's, that's, it's Lupin's worst quality, is that he's so self-depreciating, which gets him in a lot of trouble in this book, Mm -hmm. and... I think it's his, one of his worst qualities in this situation is that he just can't bring himself to... And it's not because he's he's not capable, he just thinks he's not. Yeah. Or he comes up with reasons that aren't true for why he's not capable of doing it. Which is such a shame, because he would be really good.
2: <laughs> Who do you think Dumbledore... Like, do you think he passed that on to, to Mooney when he died? Yeah. Like, as the quote-unquote head of the Order?
1: Yeah, would- so, um, I actually, uh, got into this in my book, uh, about Dumbledore, but I think Moody sort of was the failsafe that, like, if, if all of Dumbledore's epic plans kind of went to hell, I think Moody was the one who knew, um, what had to happen. Because who else in the Order would sort of be down with Harry having to sacrifice himself? Like, I can't see Lupin okaying it or the Weasleys or McGonagall or anyone. So I think uh would've relied on Moody to sort of get it done. And I think that's that maybe one of the reasons Moody was killed in this battle, because Rowling had to remove that failsafe to make Harry's life harder. Mm.
2: Michael and I agree. Mm. Well <laughs>
1: the the and
0: I think that's like that makes sense too, that Moody would have been the one that uh was the next in line because we find out how much Dumbledore trusts him in Goblet of Fire. Yeah. Um, so, and even with the <laughs> oopsies that happens in that <laughs> situation, uh, I think Dumbledore still probably recognized that what happened in Goblet of Fire was an extreme situation and that Moody can still be very much be trusted and that the experience didn't, surprisingly, didn't change him
1: that much. If anything, it made him more vigilant. Yeah. I, I mean, being, you know, taken in by Barty Crouch Jr. could happen to anyone. Because um, Barty Crouch Jr. is so damn impressive.
2: <laughs> I mean, even Harry's impressed by him, so yeah. <laughs> it's true.
1: And so anyway, so going back to the identify yourself things. So um Kingsley first addresses Lupin to identify him. Again, showing that whole leadership thing that is pretty much Kingsley and Lupin at this point. Um, and so the security question Kingsley asks is Dumbledore's last words, which are, Harry's the best hope we have. Trust him. Mm.
2: It's that's, I, that moment's so sweet. I don't know. Just it, it reminds me of the um, I'm with you. No, I will be with you moment from. Oh, my fun.
1: God. That gives me so many feelings. <laughs> I
2: know. Which is just I don't know. Dumb, I mean, for all of the faults that Dumbledore had. You know he did care about Harry, and that in that moment, um, just Harry's the best hope we have. Trust him. It's just very sweet.
0: Yeah. And
3: yet, do they trust him? No, they don't.
0: <laughs> well, okay, talk about that, Ev.
3: Well, I guess you're you saying that um, Lupin is being pretty reasonable here, but I think what came across to me in this chapter is that um, he seems to be kind of not that what he say, says isn't strictly speaking true. But the way he says it in the situation, it's more like he's venting at Harry rather than, you know, trying to say it in a helpful way. Because we know he can, because we've we've seen it in um, Prisoner of Azkaban. But it, I mean, obviously he's he's on edge for a variety of reasons. I mean, one of the reasons might be what um, Irvin was just talking about. Another reason might might be because. Um, is he freaking out about Tonks and what's going on with her between them and her being uh, putting herself in danger again, which he might not approve at this point, being who he is. Uh, I mean, how helpful it is that he yells at Harry because Harry used the spell in the heat of the moment that he doesn't approve of, and then he doesn't really give him uh, an alternative. I mean, he does sort of say, well, you could have uh, stunned Stan instead of uh, trying to disarm him, to which Harry obviously um, replies that, well, it would have killed him anyway. Do you want me to just kill people? And Lupin says, well, no. And then it just sort of fizzles out after that. So I think he's just not being very constructive. And I wonder that's because also he's unbalanced because of the uh, prospect of becoming the leader that he doesn't want to do and he's just not very good at it does that make any sense mm mm-hmm.
0: you no know, it does and you know what I, I i think is interesting about that point is that actually i feel like the reason that harry and lupin are it's it, i think it's worth looking at the comparisons between the two of them and i think the like harry and lupin have a, f- a few differences on that front which is that harry is harry's not self-depreciating like Lupin is. Harry doesn't just put himself down because, you know, he just doesn't think he's good enough. But the, and Harry has a more innate inclination to take a leadership role. Even if he doesn't necessarily want to, he'll do it. He'll step up if the, if it requires it, whereas Lupin doesn't. But I think the similarity between the two of them is that they are both using other people in their lives as kind of a, Reasoning for, you know, sep- kind of keeping away from a group or make trying to dissolve relationships hmm. with people, um, and that how that affects their thought process. Because we know, especially from the Pottermore piece about Lupin, that Lupin is very, very much at a like a tug of war with his relationship with Tonks, because he wants it, but he feels that he's the worst part of it. And that he's bringing her into more and more danger. And he's even further... He feels that even further, we see, with how he talks about, you know, it's like, oh my god, this is their only... Like This is Ted and Andromeda's only daughter, and she married a werewolf, and now we're going to have a kid, and oh my god, this is terrible. And it's all because of me. And Harry feels that same way in this chapter, because he has that same issue of, everybody did this for me oh my god, I'm putting everybody in danger and they all pretended to be me and people died because of me. I gotta leave. So, I think that's the piece that maybe is why they butt heads, actually, in this situation. is because they're actually having similar concerns about how they affect the group.
3: Should he do better, though, him being an adult?
0: Theoretically, yes. But... I think the thing to remember too, I think the thing that Lupin says in here that is kind of like the key for his perspective that Harry is, has just a different moral compass about is that it's what Lupin, like they, they say it in the conversation. Lupin is like, this is war, Harry. Like you gotta do stuff a little differently. And Harry is like, no. I can't just blast people out of the way. That's Voldemort's job. And that's kind of what brings their conversation to a halt. Um, and I think that's just a moral quandary that the two of them have a difference on at that point. I think maybe at one point Lupin would have been more of that belief, maybe back in the Prisoner of Azkaban days. But to Lupin's credit... He knows more spells than Harry does, and he's more practiced at magic. And we know from Pottermore and from the books that Lupin is a very powerful wizard. Harry, for all of his lack of spell knowledge, does tend to play def- as defensively rather than offensively in spell casting. And as we find out, that's a really good trait for him in this particular—in in this battle— but that said, uh, you know, the Death Eaters are using different spells and they're you know, that is going to be a problem in, in terms of like, if you can't, if there's certain things you can't do in this situation, you're just going to be recognized. Like Lupin's not incorrect on that front. Like that's a, that was a weird reaction for mm-hmm. most wizards. And that makes sense.
3: I think that's what's so frustrating about this whole situation is is that it's not that he's wrong, but he's just going about it in such a way that Harry isn't really going to hear him.
2: I think part of it too is that, and I, I suppose one could argue the other side of this as well, but Lupin has a little bit more to lose. Um, I know that Harry doesn't know exactly what his fate is yet, but he does know about the prophecy and, you know, he knows that. He or Voldemort have to kill each other, uh, one, you know, um, and so I feel like Harry is just trying to minimize the damage he has to do because he knows where he's ultimately going to end up and Harry's, you know, saving people thing, as they call it, it doesn't put him in the mindset of, like, the first thing he wants to do is try and kill and hurt and maim people. And Lupin has, despite the fact even, or, and maybe that's, maybe that's not the right saying, but Harry is an orphan. And even with that, I feel like Lupin has had more tragedy in his past and has gone through a lot more and has a lot more to fight for, a lot more to be angry about a lot more to be concerned about and more hatred in his heart um in general so i think it's easier for him to do those spells whereas for harry you know sure he's angry and he wants to defeat Voldemort and the like but lupin has been scarred by the world at large whereas harry really only has a quarrel with that wizard sure there are some like Ancillary things that come with that, but I feel like Lupin's, uh, Lupin's issues are with the world wider, and Harry is really focused on Voldemort and is trying to just get to him and not deal with anybody else. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it goes back to Michael's point that Harry doesn't really have a sense of perspective on um, that, that this is a big wider war going on. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think Lupin very much does get, see the bigger picture and so he doesn't have, you know the luxury of you know
2: disarming people, yeah,
1: yeah, of like having a moral compass and being like, "No, we have to be like absolutely good and not do any bad things, mm-hmm. which is why we'll we'll see you know, and the phantom still kind
0: of gets a little titchy about this, which I think is funny, but it's part of what Harry learns with this is that Harry will use an unforgivable at the end of the book mm-hmm. and and like the there are people in the fandom who are like oh why why does he use the imperious curse it's so icky and it's kind of Harry taking it into account what Lupin has said finally mm-hmm. where it's yeah. like yeah no you gotta do some bad stuff in war I think like if you want a series that really like Harry Potter explores that I think really well but if you want to like you know if you're looking for a series that's also well known that explores that very well the Hunger Games does that exceptionally mm-hmm. well um there's cho- I, but, and but disgustingly
2: I, bad but well at the same time yes
0: <laughs> exactly <laughs> well in terms of the idea that you have to make choices that you probably like if you, the idea that you start a war with a perspective having not necessarily been in the thick of a war mm-hmm. and you come out of it on the other side with a different perspective mm-hmm. and or you you end up in the midst of a war with a different perspective than when you started and that there are and the theme that goes to, runs through all of Harry Potter that people have to make choices, and it's a reflection of who they are. And sometimes you have to make a lesser of two evil choice, um, and Harry gets faced with that plenty of times. But yeah, I think there's something to be said for the fact that, yeah, Lupin's an adult, and he's seen a lot more of this than Harry. Harry has seen some crazy-ish in his time, uh, mm-hmm. we know, but it's all been at least mostly contained within the school. Um,
2: right. And centered around Voldemort or some yes. stupid thing with him, not necessarily the world at large.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think like you can you can pull into question Lupin's, how, how adult Lupin is being with pretty much every one of the adults in Harry Potter, because that's what Roland mm-hmm. is doing throughout this series is she's showing that adults can't always be relied upon and that in many ways adults are just grown children who are lost in many ways themselves and they cannot always provide the answer or the comfort that you're looking for. And I think that's something that's like shocking, but the correct direction for what Rowling does with Lupin, because he's one of the last of the kind of angelic father figures that Harry has. And Mm. he can't be quite that anymore. Like, it doesn't work that way in this setting. It works great in school, you know? when you're in a very controlled, safe environment, um, but when it all gets applied to the real world, it's not as simple.
1: Something that Harry started learning in Order of the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. I also thought that maybe this that this was one of the few instances of lampshading in the book, where Joe Rowling is like, yeah, I know he always uses the disarming spell, we're just going to all acknowledge that it's a thing. And frankly, I uh, there isn't a lot of that in the Harry Potter books. In fact, I can't think of another example of it right now, Mm. but I did just think that was, like, a little bit of a wink and a nudge to the audience.
2: Yeah, explain what um, lampshading is for those who may not know.
1: Oh, sorry. Um, So lampshading is when you, like, recognize, you know, some trope or some cliche or some silly thing you do, and you just call it out directly in the text to be like, yeah, we're in on the joke. Uh, The TV series Glee was infamous for this, because they essentially took every single criticism anyone ever had, and they're like, yeah, we know, we're in on the joke. And I'm like, but that, that no, you still have to, like, do better.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of what like, like Disney's modus operandi is right now. Because they're mm-hmm. like, we get the joke. See, we can make fun of ourselves now. Because we get it, that this happens all the time. That's what Frozen is. Frozen mm-hmm. is a giant lampshading movie. Yeah. <laughs> Same with wreck Ralph too, which, eh, yeah. But but yes, that is that is something that's I think you're right that's happening here is that it's also rolling just being like, yeah, I know. <laughs> we'll deal with that. Yeah, and and not only that, but she she doesn't just call it out as like this is like a thing that keeps happening, but also that actually it's surprisingly twist going to be Harry's saving grace at the end.
4: Hmm.
2: Oh, that's yeah. true.
1: <laughs> Expelliarmus, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey listeners, what would your signature spell be? Let us know in all the comments.
0: What would not mean?
1: Expelliarmus. No, definitely not Expelliarmus.
2: <laughs>
3: I don't What would mine be?
0: Mine would be Expecto Patronum. I would abuse the crap
1: out of that spell.
3: So would like. I think that would be mine, too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I feel like I really like Petrificus Totalus because it just has a flair.
0: Mm. <laughs> so it's more like the the way you say it than so much what it does. I mean, I, I like both. I also really like, it is, I believe, a canon spell, thanks to some information from Pottermore. But um, it showed up, I think, first properly in um, the Chamber of Secrets video game, in it's Mimblewimble. I love that one. Mm. That's the tongue-tying spell. Uh,
2: that is a good one. Yeah, Mimble I Mimble. like that. <laughs> I don't know. I think mine... Uh, yeah, I Mimblewimble I would definitely use, but I think stupefy would be mine. Because sometimes I just feel like I want to blast people out of my way.
1: That's mm-hmm. Voldemort's job. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so moving on to more cheerful topics question mark uh (laughs) george's ear oh gosh what ear is gone exactly (laughs) and so george wake wakes up and makes a terrible pun that he feels saint-like because he's holy but um
2: okay yeah so like this is joe definitely i can like See it in my mind's eye. She's sitting there and she's like tapping the pen. She's like, all right, I need an ear pun. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and then she like gets up and like makes a sandwich, maybe feeds her daughter, and, like goes for a walk and then comes back. She's like, all right, I need an ear pun. <laughs> Oh, she's like, all right, I'm just going to put this in for now and I'll come back to it. And then she forgets about it. And like, that's what we're left with.
1: Yeah. Whereas <laughs> I think she just couldn't think of a really good pun. So then she just has Fred lampshade that where he's like, with the whole wide world of ear related humor. And I I want to know more about uh, this whole wide world of ear related humor. Uh, listeners, I, I also want to know your ear puns. Uh, Please leave those in the comments. I tried
3: to think of something, and I couldn't. Right, I couldn't either. Yeah, they're... they're
2: (laughs) What ear puns? (laughs) Like, making a joke about Dumbo, maybe? Um, Like, that's the only thing I could think of. But that would involve somebody having large ears. Yeah. Not no ears.
1: Yeah, Mm. it's a conundrum. Can't think of any good ear puns.
2: Um, I, I guess since we're talking about George's ear, I, I, I'm really surprised that nobody has brought this person up already. But I want to talk about Snape for a minute.
1: Oh, we were doing so well.
2: I know. Uh. I, 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 you know, as much as I have disdain for this person, uh, he' is, so he's in the battle, and you know, uh, he is the one who cast the spell that shot the ear off, right?
1: Right.
0: Yes. So,
2: so, and we know he wasn't aiming to kill because it was, uh, I believe, Lupin says it was Sectumsempra. So, would Snape have actually like tried
3: to kill a member of the Order? I think he needed to look like he was trying, but he didn't really want to. I'm, I'm sure he probably he, could have aimed it at something something other than the ear.
0: Well, or he wasn't. He I wasn't was He was aiming for a Death Eater. Yeah, he was yeah. he was aiming for a Death Eater's wand hand because that Death Eater was almost certainly about to try and kill Lupin. But I think what he was probably going to argue or suggest was that he was aiming for them and not for the Death Eater. If he had struck the Death Eater correctly,
2: I um, forgot about that. We learned that at the end, right?
1: Yeah, uh, that's part of Princess, Princess tale.
0: tale. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's
2: right. I thought so. Um. Okay, okay, um, so then, Sectum Sempra, is that red light? Is that green light? It's red, right?
1: Uh, we don't know what light it is.
2: We don't know. Okay, I was just wondering if maybe it was potentially green, so that people, you know, he could, you know, pass it off as, yeah. oh, it was Zavadagabra.
1: I mean, I, I feel like casting Sectum Sempra is a perfectly respectable Death Eater move. Probably. Um, yeah. But, uh, to answer the question, uh, Snape says, when Dumbledore asks him, how many people have you killed? He replies, only those I couldn't save. Um, so, he's, he's willing to, I don't know, I don't know if he's willing to kill, but he's willing to let people die to maintain his cover for the war effort, because just like Lupin, Snape sees the bigger picture. Who has uh, we that seen that, that with,
2: besides Charity Burbage.
1: Um, well, that's the obvious example, but also in Spinner's End, um, Snape says that it's his information that led to the death of Emmeline Vance, who's oh. a member of the Order. That's right. Uh, so we don't know. Uh, we hope th- it wasn't actually Snape's information that led to her death. Um, I think it's more likely that she died and he was there and he took credit for it to maintain his cover. Mm. Like I, I, That was another one of those, like, I think, clues that Rowling dropped that she never quite picked back up. Because I feel like it was a very popular theory back in the day that Emily Vance was actually, that she faked her death and that she was being protected by Dumbledore. Mm. But then that never sort of came back up.
2: Wow, man, see, I was so not deep enough in fandom to know all those theories. Yeah, well, yeah that was- no, that, then that,
1: that's why I'm here, because back in my day... It's funny, too, because
0: a lot of those theories really it's like the, the a very popular string of theories was that this character didn't actually die it was just a trick of the light and that's a mm-hmm. very you know common th- we talked about that in a previous episode about kind of why we in pop culture frequently go to that as a solution for the story and it's so funny because throughout that time especially when roland got her website like people would ask just like is blah blah dead are they dead are they dead and she'd be like hmm, they're dead and they'd be like, but are they like really dead? And she'd be like, yes, they're really dead. And But like, <laughs> and do they have to like stay
1: dead? Oh yes, right. they do. They're very dead.
0: <laughs> and and it was and it's great because like throughout the series, she gives you examples of just like, yep, death is death. And it's I think that's again to why we've kind of discussed why it's a little funny about when you get into issues with Cursed Child and Fantastic Beast where it's just like, nope, death is not death. Death is death can be easily have the clock reversed or, oops, I just decided that that person's not dead. which is Right, just, uh,
2: Mar- Marvel is big on that because they, like, have brought yes. Loki back, like, what, eight times or something now?
0: Yes, it's yeah. a popular trope in, like, su- in comic books and soap operas and, like, a, we have a long history of that in pop culture, of being like, surprise, they're not dead. And Harry Potter just doesn't do
1: that. I, I disagree. I think Harry Potter totally does that. Because Pettigrew comes back when he's supposed to be dead. And Barty Cards Jr. comes back when he's supposed to be dead. And in Half-Life Prince, um, Dumbledore even says to Draco, We can hide you. We can protect you more completely than you'll ever know. Like, Voldemort will never find you. And a lot of fans took that to mean that they'll fake the Malfoy's deaths and hide them that way.
0: That's true. And maybe that's kind of that, like that trick of that, why people see that trick as potentially applying, but it's, but it tends to be to like, like you just cited, those are all baddie characters.
2: And, like, <laughs> and they were dead before we meet them. There's a yeah. difference if they were alive in book one or two killed in book three and brought back in book seven, they were already quote unquote dead before we met them.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's well, yeah. And it's not that like those characters were definitively like, killed you know like nobody like properly witnessed them die by the hand of a Nevada cadaver spell Mm
4: -hmm.
0: is part of the issue like rowling's way of killing people in her world is still pretty consistent it's like if you get killed with a spell that will kill you 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 die (laughs) so Mm -hmm. i mean the the and we'll get to a death that kind of was like a, a bit of a maybe and she plays it like a maybe for a little bit, um, in this chapter. Uh, but she doesn't even really do that for, she doesn't really play with that for very long with what happens.
1: I, I forgot that she played with that. Are mm-hmm. talking about Rodolphus? Uh, no, uh, Moody. Moody. <laughs> Be- well, because, uh, in the <laughs> next chapter, I think it is, um, I think... Ron is saying, like, well, what if Mad-Eye's not dead? And Harry and Hermione are both like, no, he's dead.
2: Oh, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That does happen.
1: Well, and it's because yeah. they're like, where's the body? <laughs> so,
2: right. and that's... the body
1: is in Umbridge's office. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so just think, if we need a body for things to be dead, then movie Voldy is not dead.
1: Uh, yes, saying. I'm aware. <laughs> I, I've been making that point for eight years. Gross. Should mm-hmm. we talk
0: about Moody? Since we Let's
1: talk about Moody. Talk about so Moody is the titular fallen warrior. Um, but Ev, you think that it also applies to Hedwig, yeah? Uh,
3: <laughs> yes. I mean, she technically dies in the previous chapter. But I looked up what Hedwig means, and it means it's a Germanic name that means battle or combat and fight duel. So... Oh. Uh, it's kind of... Yeah, Hedwig is a battle bird. So, there you go. Yeah. Uh, so, I think there's two two fallen warriors here. Yeah. It makes uh, me so sad,
2: because it, the the book... I'm sorry. Like, the can, no, the <laughs> canon says that Harry is ashamed to feel sad over Hedwig. And I'm like, no, Harry, you, you be proud of your bird. You be proud. Well, I that, think he is... It's, oh. I,
3: I don't think it's that he's not proud. I think he feels bad to be sad about Hedwig while uh, Modi is also dead, and all these people are nearly dying No, he doesn't know Modi's
2: dead when he's ashamed. He doesn't oh, yeah, know this true, happens at true. the beginning of the chapter. Yeah, I do yeah. think you're.
0: I think Ev that you're right, though, that he's he feels ashamed because there are other the, his friends' lives are currently in danger when he's feeling that. So oh. I like he's he's having that kind of moral quandary that sometimes people have of being like. Um, like, my pet, but, like, also people. And that's, you know, like, that's a popular thing that people continue to feel to the, like, a popular thing that people discuss to this day about, like, the value of animals' lives versus people. But that's the
2: thing. Like, I mean, that's the thing. Yes, Hedwig was a pet, but she was also a companion. And Harry notes that. He talks about, you know, how she was his only connection to the Wizarding World when he was with the Dursleys and all that. And I, you know, it just made me sad that Harry felt ashamed of that moment because, you know, I I feel like anyone who's had a pet has lost a pet and it doesn't feel any less tragic. Um, I think
0: what's actually surprising is that Harry seems hesitant to say anything because he feels that it would be inappropriate to say anything about Hedwig at that point, but I actually think that everybody would have been very sympathetic to
1: him if he'd said something.
2: Totally. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. I Me and Hagrid uh-huh. like,
2: just pats him on the back or something, I don't remember.
3: Well, yeah, well, yeah. yeah
1: Hagrid... Pour one out for Hedwig. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, that that <laughs> was rough. Doesn't don't. Harry really know anybody who had uh, pets and whose pets died and never thought about it. Um, well, Ron uh, had a pretty Lavender dramatic Brown. experience well, with his pets. I don't think I don't think... I don't think he would um, be willing to put himself in the same category as Lavender Brown and her rabbit. I don't think it'd be quite <laughs> the same. But then, no,
1: neither is Hermione. They're all terrible to poor Lavender. She's the real <laughs> victim here.
3: Yeah,
1: I, th- I think they all
0: are familiar enough with Hedwig and affectionate enough about Hedwig. Like yeah. they even like people even point out like that. Hedwig is kind of a unique owl in the wizarding world because she's a snowy and not a lot of people seem to have a snowy owl, Um, which also is part of kind of one of the technical reasons she dies, unfortunately, Um, because she's too much of a mark and Harry can't use her anyway. Um, But it's like, I think it's clear that everybody seems to have like a, you know, passing affection for Hedwig and knows her pretty well. I think, they all would have been sympathetic enough to this, to the situation.
3: <laughs> so mm-hmm. I thought another reason was because Hedwig was meant to be kind of his last connection to childhood. So now Hedwig's gone. Now he's grown up now.
0: No, yeah, that's the thematic connection. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the kind of the more like poetic connection of why Hedwig is taken out. Um, it makes sense. It's interesting too, that with that name translation, because in the book, she dies in a way that I think is more realistic and that she's just kind of a casualty,
1: which yep. is
0: terrible and I think makes her death more crushing. And in the movie, she dies in a way that the audience finds more, I think, satisfying if she has to die. But it also fits her name better
4: That's <laughs> um,
0: because she actually takes action and gets taken out that way. And I do think it works better for the movie to have her do what she does. Um but yeah, either way, I think if he had mentioned it at like, especially at the end when Mrs. Weiss is just like, oh, where's Hedwig? Like if he had said what
1: happened, I think they all would have been very sympathetic yeah. to that. Mm-hmm. I also think it is such nonsense that they even took Hedwig in this battle.
2: Yeah, just let her fly. Just let, let her, her fly.
1: fly. Like she'll fly to the burrow. It's fine. And then no one needs like these like stuffed owls with them in the battle.
3: I, I was about to say the same thing. I don't think Hedwig had to come on uh, Hagrid's Magical Motorbike Adventure.
2: At <laughs> <No>. all. <laughs> she didn't have to go.
4: Why was she in the cage? Oh my gosh,
3: wait. Why don't they
2: have a little bird in the cage on that ride? They really should. Universal, you dropped the ball. Yeah, because
3: this was the original motorbike adventure.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We're officially calling the Seven Potters chapter now. Chapter four is now rechristened Hagrid's Magical Motorbike
1: Adventure. <laughs>
4: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean, the whole Battle of Seven Potters is, like, the most poorly thought out thing they ever did. Well, yeah,
0: and it's because, well, and we find that out, too, from from the memory that, that it was literally, like, this desperate thing that Snape was like, uh, 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 have them do seven of them. That's the best I can think on, on you know, just light on my feet with this one. <laughs> that's all I got. So that's that's where that came from. It's not... It's not the best idea, but it's it's what he could think of.
1: Yeah. Um, and so going back to the other death, um, Moody's death. <laughs> the other death. Whatever. The last important <laughs> one. Well, so here's the thing. Like, he dies and everyone is, like, ripping their hair out and sobbing. And I'm just like, were we all that close to Moody? Like, did we care about him that much? Because that all just felt a little out of nowhere for me. Mm-hmm. I think it's because it's such
0: an intre- like it's such a bizarre relationship that we the readers and harry have had with harry- with moody because he wasn't moody for the majority of the time that we knew him and yet the guy who was playing him was so him
1: that we did spend time with him kind of so i mean But even so, like, when Harry is, like, you know, having his whole inner monologue about how sorry he feels for himself, but Dumbledore, like Mad-Eye, like Sirius, like his parents, like his poor owl, all were gone. And I'm reading that sentence, I'm like, one of these things is not like the other.
0: Yeah, no, you're right.
1: I mean, I don't know if, (laughs)
0: like, Moody isn't the one that the fandom rallies around as, like, one of the big deaths. And maybe that's purposeful at this point in the story? Because Moody is more of a, he is more of a tactical death than he is an emotional death, right? Mm-hmm. Also,
3: I think Harry knows that it's appropriate appropriate to be sad about Madai and not appropriate to be sad for Hedwig. Well, he probably in his head. Because, you know, Madai was a person and he was important, so he's almost, like, sad because he knows he should be. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense?
2: Because he thinks he should
3: be. Yeah, because he thinks he know. should be.
2: I don't know. I, I always sort of, uh, and maybe this is a, not on the emotional level, but on the, like, how well do we know somebody level? I always sort of compared Moody's death to the, like, celebrity death. And that, you know. Oh, you've, that,
1: you've, that's good. That's you, really like, good. you've
2: known this person and you've experienced them. You may not know them personally or know a lot about them, but they've sort of, they've kind of, gotten this legendary status just from being celebrity and i feel like moody's kind of up there like he's this big badass or who has like a big chunk taken out of his nose he's got like a fake eye and a wooden leg and he's just sort of like this legend and then he dies and i feel like people react to that the same way they react to when a legendary celebrity dies you may not know that person but you know enough about them and what they've contributed to the world or the war or the whatever, to have some sort of strong emotional reaction.
1: See, and maybe that's why I don't get it, because I don't have that strong reaction to celebrities, because I'm like, I don't know them. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'll feel a twinge of sadness, but I I was never the one who was, like, sobbing for days when some actor died.
2: So. No, uh, I agree. I'm with you on that. There've, there have just been a couple where I've sort of been like, oh, man, like, that sucks. You know, that that yeah. that sucks. But... Um, yeah, that's, that's the way I've always thought about Moody dying, at least.
1: that That's a really good comparison. That actually makes it make a lot more sense for me.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, he has a larger than life figure in Harry's life, um, even though he doesn't really know him. I mean, like Michael said, we spent so much time with quote unquote Moody
0: <laughs> that hmm.
2: Harry feels like he knows this character, but doesn't really even at all.
0: Well, and Rowling tries to kind of establish that in Order of the Phoenix when she notes like through harry's perspective that oh this is kind of weird because this is moody but this is the real one not the fake one mm-hmm. but he acts just like the fake one so he said
2: but but like more erratic or something right i think something like that yeah
0: i don't remember exactly what he says but yeah it's like he does notice that it's like it's her it's it's also her, like in order of the phoenix it's her way of being like it's okay for you to slap the traits from fake moody onto real moody because they were basically the same person as far as the performance. Like you can you can move those traits over and you've still got pretty much the same guy. So
1: that I don't have to explain this character over again to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one of the like uh, bits of information they drop is that Harry knew Tonks was his favorite and his protege at the Ministry of Magic. And this is just dropped as, like, uh, we all know this, right? And I'm like, do we know that? I don't feel like we know that. That might have been mentioned in order. I feel like in order it's at least
0: known that Tonks was working under Moody. Yes. But I think that's mentioned there. But I don't know if it's, like, mentioned that she's his favorite or anything like
1: that.
3: Maybe it's one of those off-the-page things that, Wait, wait, sorry.
1: Why why would she be working under him? Because he's, like completely retired from the ministry and she only joined up a few years ago Doesn't she say she trained under him? Nope
2: uh, mm, hold on I'll look it up I think I, I think there is something in order about that
0: I thought she trained under him because she graduated from Hogwarts in the 80s right
2: okay so she does say just for the record in order because uh, Harry they're talking about concealment and disguise Harry says you're an or. She says, yeah, Kingsley is as well. He's a bit higher up than I am, though I only qualified a year, like, year ago. Um, so, there's that.
1: Right, which means she's only, like, seven years older than Harry or so.
2: Right. I mean, Moody and Tonks do have quite the relationship, because she says, like, stop being so cheerful, Mad-Eye. He'll think we're not taking this seriously. Um, Right,
1: well, she sasses him all the time, but I just always assumed that was you know, her character before she fell in love with Lupin and got all mopey.
2: I don't know. I read it as more of a close relationship, because then when they're going through the clouds, she's like, we're not going through the clouds. We'll get soaked. Um, I mean,
1: I feel like I wouldn't have to know someone that well to be like, no, we're not flying through clouds.
2: Are you finding anything, Michael? I
1: don't remember where it is.
2: Some listener will tell us.
1: I mean, the point I think that Irvin's trying
0: to make is that Rowling is building up Moody's death here in a way that maybe it doesn't necessarily deserve. Like, mm-hmm. she's giving him traits that he didn't have or that we didn't know or that were off the page. And I think you're right. And I think it's because she chose to kill a character that Harry doesn't have as close of a relationship with. But that, again, she had to kill off for a tactical reason.
2: Well, and, Harry reveres him, right? Sees him as a strong person.
0: Yeah. So if ma- he can mainly, be killed,
2: then, oh, ish. We are yeah, all in trouble.
1: Yeah. I think well, that- I feel like we got that with Dumbledore already. I feel like if Dumbledore can be killed, like, the fact that Moody can be killed isn't all that shocking.
2: Yeah, maybe, but, like, the, I don't know. The Dumbledore-Snape thing is different vibes for me. That's much more of a, like, betrayal death. Um There were extenuating circumstances. You know, Dumbledore was already weak, I don't know. I don't know.
0: I just... Well, Dumbledore gets killed at the end of kind of the weird, what you could call... I mean, it wouldn't... That would be more Order of the Phoenix. But Dumbledore gets killed almost during the Cold War stage of this war, where there's not as much aggression outright from Voldemort's side. Mm -hmm. And it's in a safe space, what was heretofore considered a safe space. And it was through circumstances that had a lot of suspicion around them about whose loyalty was to who. So... Whereas Moody just gets killed in the line of action, like that's more, I think, and it's more sudden and it's more shocking. I think, in that way, first he doesn't get a you know big speech or anything before he dies. He dies off screen and everything. Um, right. It's it's sort of and, like
2: the difference between like Boromir and Theoden, like in Lord of the Rings. Like hmm. you know, Theoden's like the king, and you just don't expect the king to really ever die. And Boromir is like that soldier who's out there doing the thing, and yeah, I mean, like, he's probably gonna, probably gonna kick it.
1: I I mean, I always thought that Moody's death was sort of to set the tone of people die here and not just the one, because I feel like for the last few books, there was one big death at the end of the book, and so we all, like, knew that, and we were all, like, waiting for it and looking for it. And Moody's death was sort of to set the baseline of, no, there's not just gonna be one big death, there's gonna be so much death. hmm mm-hmm. There were always all these like betting pools on like who's gonna be the one person to die. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's going to be
0: characters that, like, cause I don't think people were like seriously like really on the big train of like, Mad Eye Moody's gonna be the one to die. Like <laughs> right. it's gonna, like it's gonna be characters that are kind of scattered throughout their importance to the narrative. Like it's not just going to be like, Oh, this person's really important. They'll die. This person is like a background character. They'll die. Like she, she was very clever and strategic about who she killed. Um, and she doesn't kill just to kill. So she does it with purpose with most of the characters.
3: Also, I think the whole scene with, um, um, you know, them all standing around and drinking their fire whiskey. It's almost like, um, Madai's funeral. And I think at a funeral, you're expected to kind of be outwardly more sad, even you're not necessarily feeling that way.
2: Just a bit more somber.
3: Yeah. So I think part of it is also this is going on because they they can't just go, oh, well, okay he's dead. You know, moving on whatever. Yes. Because it, it's just, it's an, it's, it would be inappropriate.
0: Yes. Well, because there are people in the room who did have a deeper connection to Moody. And this is also, as far as it serves the narrative in Harry's story, this is still feeding into the piece about what Harry's per- issues right now about what he's, what he, he thinks he has done to other people. And this, like he, cause he's going to go directly into that conversation After they talk about Moody, he's going to be like, "Okay, I got to go, because I can't (laughs) risk more of you going the way Moody
1: did, because that was my fault." So, and Ev, I know you feel differently about this, but I was all out of patience for Harry's whole, "Oh, I'm a piece out now to protect you all." This whole endeavor was to protect him and get him into a safe house, and the whole, "I'm leaving to protect you all," just seems really tone deaf and also is really repetitive like at some point you just gotta accept that you have allies
3: uh, well I mean it is I mean strictly speaking it is a stupid thing to do but I can also understand his <laughs> uh him thinking that way uh, I think because personally if I was in that kind of situation this is probably what I would I would think and and um, then you know people who care for me would be incredibly frustrated with me for not thinking that I have mm-hmm. allies because I am like, I understand it from that point of view while also, as he said, you know, it would be extremely stupid and counterproductive as every single person pretty much points out to him. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, cause there isn't really a single person in the situation who could really be that kind of a steadying figure for Harry in the moment, because obviously Dumbledore isn't there. Uh, there's nobody there um, to sort of sit there quietly and smile and say, you know, go ahead, do what you need to do. Um, because Lupin could have been that person, but he has a lot of stuff going on, as we've just discussed. And yeah. you know, Molly and Arthur, they, they, they have their family situation, the saint-like situation. Um
4: <laughs> uh, Yeah, there's
3: he's there isn't really anybody there to to be that kind of a you know rock for Harry. I mean Hagrid could technically be but he's drinking and crying again.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that's So them. I can
3: sort of see where he's coming from emotionally, but then um, you know, if you just apply your intelligence to it, obviously this is not very um, appropriate for him to say
1: yeah um, and this is my Ravenclaw side uh, versus I was just what about I to term say, Gryffindor Ravenclaw? nonsense <laughs> yep I am a Ravenclaw very much so
3: <laughs> I, I had that feeling
1: <laughs> <laughs> what gave it away <laughs> well that's
0: what like we were saying earlier that's, that's the trait that Lupin and Harry both share that is problematic for both of their characters that they take the burden on as oh, it's me, um, and Harry, and and you know we'll see in many ways that that's kind of Lupin's downfall in some ways
1: with his character
0: and Harry, but that's th- this is the beginning. I think we really honed in on this with the initial Alohomora reread that this is the uh, this is the arc of Harry's character in Hallows is that he needs to understand that this isn't just this little self-contained conflict between him and Voldemort and that he needs to push everybody aside to keep them safe and that they're all doing this for him. And that, cause that's the wrong way to think about it all. And if he does, if he thinks that way, he's not going to succeed. And that's why Dumbledore kind of kept reminding him like, you know, to, to be mindful of his ability to love and, you know, have strong relationships with others because that's what he needs to rely on.
3: You do have friends, and that's okay.
0: (laughs) Yes, you have friends, and they are not doing this just for you. They have personal stake in this too. Hermione and Ron will remind him of that in the Ghoul in Striped Pajamas chapter when they're like, yeah, this isn't just about you. Like, we all have something that we could lose or have lost. But that's, I mean, the other piece to remember too about that is that this is oh, another brilliance of Rowling's writing and how well she writes teenagers, because if you're talking about it kind of from the developmental perspective, Harry doesn't have, Harry and his friends um, of his age don't have, their, their frontal lobes are not fully developed, they, so they <laughs> They don't have the ability to make good decisions completely yet or they don't have that little – basically when you're – like the, the science says somewhere around the age of 25, your frontal lobe stops developing and that frontal lobe is the part of your brain that tells you how – like it kind of is like a little bit of a – a little bit of the last piece of your conscience that can help you make well-informed decisions um, and teenagers don't have that.
3: Maybe that's uh, what Lupin it, should have said. Harry, you have your frontal lobe undeveloped. Yeah, just don't <laughs> use its caliarmus,
0: please. They've mm-hmm, mm-hmm. probably
1: never learned <laughs> that because they don't learn things like that
3: at
0: Hogwarts.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but I always thought that was one thing that Jo did so, so well in her world building, which trips up so many other writers. The fact that not everyone in the Wizarding World spends all their free time thinking about Harry and Voldemort. That, like, mm-hmm. they all have their own lives and their own agendas and, like... Frankly, most of them don't think about Harry and Voldemort like 99% of the time. And I I think that's so well done and that's so easy to mess up when just everyone you run across has been like, yes, I've been thinking about this conflict for the last 10 years. Let me tell you what I think.
0: Well, yeah, it's it's a really important narrative that comes out of pretty much every war that you have to realize that war happens, but, and war can be terrible and it can affect a lot of people but lives still go on Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: like people still go on living and they there are a lot of people in the midst of war who don't who can still have their day-to-day lives and you know not give one care or thought to what's happening within that conflict you know, if you're being mindful, you'll realize that that's happening like now, but that, that's, that's a thing that happens with war is that, yeah, there are many people who are just living their lives and yeah, I think you're right, Irvin, that that's one of, that's one thing that Rowling takes into wonderful account with the series that a lot of other series maybe aren't so careful with because they are so centered around their protagonist.
1: Yeah. And so, um, i like to discuss one of the very, very big themes um, in this chapter, which is sort of trusting people versus um, not trusting them in favor of security. Because this chapter is really one of the very few times that, like, the books explicitly get into this debate with characters just, like, you know, talking it out and sharing their perspectives. But, like, it's such an important theme, especially in Deathly Hallows. And so once all of them get into a room and they start talking about, you know, someone betrayed us, I thought it was fascinating to see, like, where the lines are drawn. Because Lupin and Fleur, of all people, are the ones focused on there being a traitor in their midst. Whereas Harry says, no, 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 we've got to trust each other. And both Weasley twins second that with another ear pun where they say, ear, ear.
3: (laughs) So she did think of another ear pun.
1: When, when she was yeah, yeah she she thought of two ear puns and included them both. <laughs> so I, ju- I just thought that was so well done. And so it's easy to see where Lupin's coming from because it's explicit in the text mm-hmm. uh, where Lupin says, I think you're like James, who would have regarded it as the height of dishonor to mistrust his friend. So like Lupin's just all kinds of on edge at this point, but he's also getting all these flashbacks to when there was a traitor in their midst and how he lost... Everything in the span of twenty four hours because of that. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you guys, where do you think Flora's coming from? The only textual thing I can
0: even think of where Fleur is coming from is that the ish, the even though she was not as directly affected by it, the experiences of the Wizard Tournament were probably traumatic. Once it was revealed what had happened, <laughs> it's. Again, not that she was directly involved in it, but once she knew about, because she probably found out about what happened with Moody. Yeah. And, and that Cedric's death, and she knew Cedric. She didn't know him well, but she knew him. She knew him yeah. kind of as much as Harry
1: knew him.
2: Maybe even yeah. more so because didn't she anything- was
1: making eyes at him.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, I feel like she probably made a bit more of an effort with Cedric because he was the quote legitimate champion.
1: Yeah, and Moody also attacked her in the maze. Yes,
2: that's true. That's true.
1: So she has. That's a very good good point. point. Yeah, I think that's the only
0: textual evidence we have for that. There might there. I'm and there's things that we know perhaps that Fleur has seen off the page or experienced off the page, Um, but. I mean, because, yeah, she's taken a big jump from even where she was in Half-Blood Prince.
2: Right. She, she's also just new to the family. And it's, it's not hard to feel, while you're a part of a unit, it's not hard to feel like, oh, last to arrive, first to go.
1: Oh, so you think that that's her um, sort of trying to get out ahead of anyone accusing the newbie?
2: I don't know. I, not necessarily. I, I just could see why and how she could be on the defensive. You know, they're not married yet. Um, she's, she's sort of the, the newcomer, the outsider, as far as all of this goes.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah, I think, well, and we saw too in Order, or in Goblet of Fire, that Fleur is very reactionary to things. Um, she's pretty outspoken when the issues come up around the Goblet of Fire and That's what true. happened to it. And she's, she's pretty talkative about that. So I, I think that makes, I think it makes sense that Fleur's ready to jump in with an opinion on this. Yeah.
1: I, I feel she has a very finely tuned sense of fairness of like what is and isn't right. I mm-hmm. mean, Fleur Delacour is a Hufflepuff.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, she's a little self-righteous, but I do think that she has. Uh, her head on pretty good.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm really surprised, actually, that nobody is, like, talking more about Mundungus, because he bounced, and like, nobody puts forth any possibilities about
1: that with him. Well, because Mundungus was the one who came up with the plan. I know. But that also seems suspicious. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> I, I think that they also think that – I mean, how could you suspect Mundungus? I mean, he is uh, – I don't know. He just seems like such a – he's a rat in the same sense that Pettigrew's a rat, but Mundungus is oh, – he's much more – um a word I'm searching for, like self upfront about it. Sure, yeah, he's definitely more honest about his dishonesty, that's for sure. I think he's just also more self sufficient than Pettigrew. Uh, Mundungus is much more able to take care of himself, whereas Pettigrew has to rely on the talents of other people. Yeah, I think Mundungus is probably a fairly skilled wizard, I would assume.
1: Yeah. And to be fair, they do bring that up, where, you know, someone, I forget who says, Mundungus vanished, what's that all about? And Bill Weasley's like, Voldemort was coming at him and he didn't want to be part of this, so I Mm. think we can see where he's coming from. So Bill just sort of nips that one in the bud.
2: And and we're meant to trust Bill, of course.
1: Right, yeah, because he's cool.
2: Because
3: he's Bill. Because
1: he's cool. You gotta trust your cool (laughs) older brother. Right, yeah. but
3: then why did Madai made him come anyway? Because they did explicitly say that it was Mundungus's idea, and but he didn't want to come, and Madai made him come. Why did he made him I come?
1: I think I'm because Madai the order is very short-staffed. <laughs> but, but,
3: I, but I mean, even even you know, Mrs. Fig would have done better. I mean, she has a better <laughs> track record on not bailing on people.
1: Well, but she's a squib; she can't do magic. Whereas, like, I think. The hope was that Mundungus would contribute. Yeah,
3: she can't disoperate. Uh, touche.
1: She,
2: right, she can't do any defensive spells either, though, or offensive. I
1: think part of it
0: is is the security piece, which is that he came up with the plan, so we got to keep him close. And it just seems logical that if he came up with it, he should probably be involved in it.
2: Do now someone refresh my memory? Does Snape specifically mention
0: where he got the in
2: Princess Tale from? No, 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 no. In the Princess Tale, like why Mundungus? Because
1: Mundungus was an easy mark to Imperius. Okay, sure. Yeah,
2: I couldn't remember if it was specifically said, is all. But that makes sense.
0: Is Mundungus where where they got the information of the
1: night that he was going to be moved? Uh, no, so that changed, I think, because the original plan was to move him, you know, Saturday next, or whatever they talk about in Dark Lord Ascending, and then I think part of the plan is to change the night um, they were moving him, and to add the Seven Potters bit. So you actually had the wrong night. Snape had the right night. so... Yes, because Snape fed Mundungus the night
0: to move him. Oh, gotcha. Because in, in the... Okay, because when I went back and read it, the only thing I found in that was that Snape coerces Mundungus to, to do the Seven Potters thing, but he doesn't say what night. Oh, like, he doesn't? I didn't think he oh. did, but
1: I might have misread it. Uh, I, let me page through over here. Um, My
2: god, a physical copy.
1: As opposed to What?
2: I don't know. I, well, I listen to the audiobooks a lot, but I actually, pl- <laughs> I actually pledged to reread this summer with my physical copies because it's been so long.
0: Yeah, he says, You will suggest to the Order of the Phoenix that they use decoys, polyjuice potion, identical potters. It is the only thing that might work. You will forget that I have suggested this. You will present it as your own idea. You understand? And that's all he says. Huh. He doesn't suggest the night move. At least, yeah.
1: not in that section. But. But then, how would Snape have the right date and Yaxley have the wrong one? That's what I was wondering. Or, or maybe, or maybe the Order had planned a different date and Snape got it out of Mundungus. Mm-hmm. That's possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's one or the other. We'll never know. I don't like you, Mundungus Fletcher. <laughs> 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 That's all this really is. I just don't like
0: Mundungus.
2: I mean, I love the actor they chose to play him. I think he's fantastic oh, I know, I know, I know in the movie. He's so great. I think he's great. Like, not Mundungus, but I think the character is fantastic.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I wish we got to see him more, actually. It would have been nice to see him more.
2: And I think Dan did a really good job during Seven Potters when he had to, like, pretend to be him. Um, Because it's really funny. He's like, all right, all right, all right. Like, (laughs) it just that, I mean, that whole scene is fantastic anyway and shows, uh, you know, that Dan can actually be a decent actor. (laughs) So.
1: I know, who to thunk it after all those Harry Potter movies?
2: But I digress.
1: <laughs> yeah. So back to the um, trust versus security debate. So then there's this amazing ironic line where Harry recalls that Mad-Eye had always been scathing about Dumbledore's willingness to trust people. Which is just the most amazing bit of irony because the entire arc of Deathly Hallows is the fact that Dumbledore didn't trust anyone and Harry learning that he shouldn't do things exactly the way Dumbledore did them because like right now Harry is very much in what would Dumbledore do um frame of mind and it's really not until the battle of hogwarts at the very end of the book where um with the with Dumbledore's army and Ron and Hermione are just like no may, maybe we can't trust them and Harry's like yeah maybe Dumbledore didn't do it exactly right maybe maybe we should and so I, I just love that this chapter just introduces that whole arc that we see play out through throughout the book. Mhm. Yeah. Well, and
0: this is that's why perhaps too we get this this these adult figures in Harry's life kind of falling from their pedestals in Harry's eyes is that that's what Harry has to learn is that yeah, the the, the, the big theme of the Harry Potter books is that the just because adults are adults doesn't always mean they make good decisions. Um, no, in fact they very often make very bad decisions. Very bad decisions. Yes, and that their decisions yeah. are their decisions for future generations are often based out of personal experience and outdated experience. And that that's and that that's not necessarily applicable to what children need when making decisions of their own. They need to make their own informed decisions that dum- that adults may have missed, like Dumbledore. So,
1: yeah, that's,
0: but it's, but we're seeing that here in this chapter.
1: Yeah. And another ironic thing is that Lupin was the one arguing the hardest for security and not trusting people, and yet he's the first one, a few chapters later, to be like, so can I go on an adventure with you guys? Like, c- like you know, you don't have to trust me completely, but like, I feel like I should be on the adventure with you. So, a bit of hypocrisy from Lupin. Yes, Lupin.
0: Yeah,
2: he has a journey in this book, doesn't he? he has a oh, ju- that he is,
0: does. He has a journey in just, like, the first, like, ten chapters. <laughs>
3: yeah, well, and, I think once he cools down, he he kind of goes, you know, let's have an adventure.
2: I see that you have another um, um, OGM stated here. I can't believe I we're going to have two OGMs in one chapter.
1: I mean, th- that that's the standard we got to keep to. So, uh... When they're toasting Mad Eye, uh, at that funeral we were talking about, uh, there are 13 people there. So it all goes back to when 13 dine, the first to rise is the first to die. So. Is it
2: true? Does that happen? Yeah.
1: Cause if you look at it, the 13 people there are Molly, Arthur, Bill, Fleur, Fred and George, Ron Hermione, Harry, Ginny, Lupin, Tonks, and Hagrid. Um, and they're all drinking to Mad Eye's memory because, at that point, Kingsley has left to go to the ministry. And so um, the first one to, you know, end the moment, the first one to rise from that is Lupin. Um, and he actually does it twice. First, uh, to bring up the whole um, trust conversation, and second, to um, go find Moody's eye. And sure enough, Lupin is uh, dying at the end of the book.
2: Does oh, he die man. before Fred?
1: Uh, we don't know. So we see Fred die... Um, on the page, and then afterwards we see um, Lupin and Tonks' dead bodies. So, we we don't quite know which order they died in, but I feel like this is confirmation that Lupin was the first to go. Aww. I
2: buy it. I'm in. That sounds good. I buy it. Yeah, That is sad, though.
1: <laughs> Isn't it, though? Yeah, that when 13 dying thing is like a really fun thing to look for as you read the books, because uh, Rowling uses it several times.
2: She's a smarty.
0: Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a little bit that happens at the end here before the chapter closes
1: up. There is. Um, so first, um, we begin the conversation about wand lore, because this chapter literally introduces every thread that will be pulled apart in Deathly Hallows. And so Harry's trying to convince everyone that his wand acted of his own accord, but Hermione and Mr. Weasley both don't believe him.
2: <sighs> okay, like, I understand why Hermione doesn't believe him. But Arthur, the man who's obsessed with plugs, doesn't believe Harry? I don't know. I just feel like Arthur has such an open mind about things that I'm surprised that he doesn't at least give Harry the benefit of the doubt.
1: Well... You know, I was surprised too, but I think it's wishful thinking on Arthur's part. I think he really wants to believe that Harry has, you know, some unknown magical prowess that will help him take down Voldemort. Because remember, Mm. Dumbledore invested a lot of time in building Harry up as a symbol among the Order. And now that Moody's dead, Harry is sort of very much their last best hope for this entire war effort. So I think that's Mr. Weasley just sort of fervently hoping and praying that Harry's wrong in this instance.
2: Okay.
0: Well, in Mr. Weasley's open-mindedness, while he is a very like, you know, thoughtful character, his open-mindedness tends to be more centered around muggles than it does around magic. Because with magic, he's, he's just, that's more of kind of like a life experience to him. Like it doesn't really, like he kind of knows probably like the general limitations of how magic works kind of in the same way Hermione does from her, book smarts um harry has continuously proven himself to be a bit of an anomaly with magic so i don't think it's unreasonable for people to think like "Ooh, harry did another cool magic thing that none of us can do because he has this weird connection with voldemort and he's had a weird history with him and all of this stuff and wands are pretty solidified with what they do um yeah i think they don't understand all of that deeper stuff.
3: Arthur was probably never into the whole magical research in Hogwarts anyway.
0: Yeah, he was more interested in muggles.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, but, but still, Arthur has first-hand experience of Harry's extraordinary ability.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, they all do. Like, honestly, they should all just stop doubting unprecedented magical things going on where Harry Potter's concerned. But old habits die hard. It's true. Well, and there's such
0: a like. They're so. They're also insistent because this is really where that like. Urban said this is really where like. We've had scatterings of like wand rules throughout the chap throughout the books, but like Deathly Hallows is where a lot of wand rules get solidified. Like Harry, of course, a wand can't do that, or of course, a wand can do this, and those things
1: haven't really been stressed until now. Right. I mean, that that's such a classic fantasy trope, being like, well, of course this is impossible and magic can't do that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Deathly thats as much as
0: I enjoy Deathly Hallows, that's one of Deathly Hallows' biggest problems, is that
1: it does just introduce a thing, just being like,
0: Harry, duh... And
1: yeah, like obviously invisibility cloaks fade over time. And <laughs> I, yeah. Everyone knows that. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot with the Deathly Hallows as,
0: and I talked about this in our original reread, but there's a lot about the Deathly Hallows book that kind of has some, there's, there are some deus ex machina feels and it amazingly comes from the Deathly Hallows, um, that Rowling has to establish some rules that she has lightly, Kind of vaguely established, but she solidifies
1: them here. Well, it's because I think Rowling never quite planned on the Deathly Hallows being the Deathly Hallows. No. I think she just had a lot of magical MacGuffins going on mm. in Deathly Hallows. Then she was like, I don't have a lot of magical MacGuffins. It's all one big thing, and it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I feel like she retroactively made them all Hallows because I think she had the Elder Wand in place and she knew she had the stone in place and she was like, "Yeah, Hallows, they're all Hallows." Mm-hmm.
2: I, I, I don't buy that, but that's a discussion for another episode. That well, is, yes, we're going then,
1: a bit long. When you and you mentioned here
0: too that this this piece is what this piece is also meant to introduce her reintroduce rather Hermione's close mindedness. And that comes up again at the very end of the chapter. She has the last word on that, and I think that's like that's important because that's that's the role she will play in Deathly Hallows in Harry's journey. Because her close-mindedness is actually super important to solving the mystery.
1: Yeah, um, and as Dumbledore says, he was relying on Miss Granger to slow her down. Yep. Yeah, he needed he needed Hermione to slow Harry down so that he
0: could properly think about things instead of just going for it with the Hallows. Um, and Hermione provides a much needed sobering perspective, even if this is kind of one of the occasions where she ends up being a little incorrect. Um, yeah, she's even though she's not correct, her perspective
1: is still valuable to yeah. Harry's final decisions. Um, and I think her perspective on the other thing, on that last word, is, kind of is correct. When, um, Harry has a Voldy vision and Hermione's like, he's taking over the ministry and the newspapers and half the wizarding world. Don't let him inside your head, too. That, like, that's a drop the mic moment. Cause like, yeah. Like, how are you gonna argue against that?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. She, she, I think, like, it's, I think
0: we find, uh, we, again, we frequently find these things frustrating as a reader because they come from Harry's perspective. And Harry has a slightly better understanding of what he's seeing versus Ron and Hermione because they don't see it. Um, but you know, it's, it is, it is frustrating when Harry has this in that's valuable and Hermione's like, close that up. And mm-hmm. I, because Dumbledore said so. <laughs> and, and, that ends up being a useful tool but you know harry can harry knows that that's useful as much as hermione knows it's not like there's no definitive answer there
2: she gets um, it in the end thank goodness so yeah
0: she does she finally gets it at the very end and you know tells harry that he actually needs to do it but it it makes sense why she doesn't want him to and this is a great summation of why
1: yeah have we discussed why the Voldy visions returned? Because I never quite got a compelling argument for that within the text. And I always thought that was just a bit of rolling cheating because she just needed the visions to resume from a storytelling perspective. But can you guys think of a good in-universe reason for them? Yeah, because they take basically a rest in Half Blood Prince, don't they?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, when Dumbledore makes a very good argument that like now he's aware of the connection, now he's practicing occlumency against you, and so no more visions. So unless Voldemort forgot to practice occlumency, or just got really bad at it I think over the, the, the summer,
2: I think it's the anger because he's with Ollivander, um, you know, talking about the wands and all of that. So I, I think it's an I think it's the anger. I just can't, he can't control everything and be angry at Ollivander the way that he is.
1: So you think Voldemort is just completely, like, calm and serene through all of Half-Blood Prince? I mean, yeah, no,
0: that's... No,
2: but I don't think that he's angry like this.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: I think there's a somewhat fair argument for that because Voldemort is kind of, he himself is laying low during Half-Blood Prince and kind of sending out...
2: Puppet the, mastering.
0: Yes. Yeah. and Delegating. Yes. And a lot of the actions are being taken by Snape and the rest of the Death Eaters. And they're really just kind of, you know, being terrorists. And so, and it's all being, it's all actually going according to plan in Half-Blood Prince. Um, and then, of course, he's toying and playing with Draco as revenge on Lucius. So he's getting...
2: Which is He's getting fun. quite a
0: bit of joy f- from that.
2: Yeah, he's getting his jollies.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. so I didn't remember y'all talking about that on the Malfoy episode. So it would seem that, yeah, logically in Half blood Prince, he's pretty satisfied with where things are at. But that's, All
2: right. that's, that's what I've always assumed that it
3: was the, the
2: pure anger.
0: What were you going to say?
3: I was going to say, what could you have done instead? I mean, obviously, this is a very efficient way to um, get us to the whole Ollivander moment. So, what would she have done instead? I mean, I guess she could have had maybe a separate chapter that wasn't from Harry's point of view uh, that was just, you know, Voldemort and Ollivander or yeah. something like that, which would have been I guess longer and would have oh, sort no, of taken a side well, moment. What else would she have done?
1: I 100% agree that she needed to do it for storytelling purposes. I just think she's cheating a bit. Yeah. Like, I think if if I were her, I would have not done away with the visions in Half Blood Prince. I think I would have just like had an occasional one or two, being like, "Yeah, Voldemort's you know pretty calm, but oh, we get a glimpse here and there," um, and just sort of not, yeah, not introduce the fact that they've gone away at all.
3: Yeah, he's super yeah. too cold, and he's really angry. You know, now moving on with the Half Blood Prince. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah,
2: yeah. I just, I, I just don't see any reason that he had to be angry. Uh, to this extent in Half-Blood because he wasn't targeting Harry in Half-Blood. He's targeting Dumbledore. And uh, he's not being thwarted the same way in Half-Blood that he is being thwarted here. And not, you know, he thought that Lucius's wand was going to work. That it was going to help him kill Harry and that would be done. Dumbledore is finally out of the way. He finally got the one thing that he wanted. And now he's going after the other one. And I feel like this is an anger that he probably hasn't felt since he's had his body back with the exception maybe of Harry getting away from him at the end of goblet. But I think, I think that the, the complacency and the okayness and the content with having other people do the dirty work in half blood makes sense for why there were no visions because he wasn't, personally going after anything, and as far as he knew, Draco was making progress and Snape was there taking care of him, so he was happy. If Draco failed, Snape would do it. It didn't matter to him what happened in the end. Uh, he was content. So, I, I mean, I could see why you think this is a cheat. I I think it's 100% legit.
0: Fair enough. I think Rowling does a good job of establishing through the, you know, order through, well, really, kind of goblet through. Hallows that this is kind of sketchy magic as it is, and she mm. like it it and it's unpredictable as with as are most things with with Harry and Voldemort and their connection. And I think she's fairly consistent with it. I I can see why it does look like a cheat, especially because of Half Blood Prince. But I also do think it's narratively the correct choice because, like Ev pointed out. It would just be weird to stop the story for a vision that really doesn't have anything to do with Half-Blood Prince because the narrative is so well done, I feel, for Half-Blood Prince and what it is focusing on. And you're already getting a taste of Harry's connection with Voldemort through the memories. So you don't really need visions of Voldemort's current, uh, what he's up to.
2: Half-Blood is like almost not even at all about Harry. In any way. I mean, it's about the other characters' stories.
0: Yeah. Well, and Half-Blood is so important in that it's in its theme of the idea that war is how people behave when war is on their doorstep, but it hasn't, you know, quite come in yet. Um, I think that's a big piece of Half-Blood Prince. So keeping Voldemort off screen in his current state, I think, is kind of actually important to the story. So. Yeah, I think it, it like I can see the argument, too, for why it's kind of shoddy. Um, but she almost seems to somewhat acknowledge that to some degree with just being like, uh, yeah, this is a little
1: questionable. Don't worry. About yeah. It. Yeah. Never. Never <laughs> mind. We take it all back.
2: Um, well, Michael, I don't think we'll get any hate mail this time. So that's good.
1: <laughs> well, then I just haven't done my job.
2: <laughs> oh, well, honey, you got time. Honey, you (laughs) Yeah, Uh, listeners,
1: like I said, go back to that original episode if you really
0: want some controversial (laughs) conversation on Lupin. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) So So good, though, and I still believe it very firmly, but we won't go there. Um, Where we are going to go is we're going to thank Ev for being here on this episode, for joining us. We hope you had a lot of fun. You were a great guest. Thank you so much for joining us. Well,
3: thank you for inviting me and putting up with me, too. Oh,
2: please. You were not one to be put up with. Thank
1: you. Yeah, you were great. Thanks for joining yeah, thank think you have. Um, and our next topic will be Muggles and Squibs.
2: Ooh, that's
3: going to be a fun yeah, one.
1: That's going to be a really cool discussion.
2: Oh my gosh!
3: Can a you can you please fig. discuss the uh, Mrs. Fig instead of Mundungus with <laughs> Madame <Matt Emelie> Moody <laughs> on that episode, please? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, no, I I think she'd do great. She'd well, just, like, throw cats at all the Death Eaters.
3: Oh my gosh, oh, No, the Tims, so The Tims of cat food.
1: Hey, cats always <laughs> land on their feet, right? Even when they're 50 feet up in the air? <laughs> uh,
3: maybe. Yeah,
2: if their feet aren't broken when they land. Yeah. We'll yeah. add it to the notes, Ev, which is great. <laughs>
3: Thank you.
0: Well, I suppose this is good a place as any, uh to uh point out since we were just since Irvin was just announcing our next topic that i will not be joining that ne- next topic uh nor will i be joining many next topics uh listeners and for those of you who listened to the previous episode of speak beastie you will know that uh i am leaving both Mora and speak beastie uh this was my last episode and uh yeah i'm so glad i time. got to
3: be an ep- on an episode with you michael then
0: me I no, too. I have no idea. I'm so glad you got to join us for this too, Ev. Um, yeah, it's it's time for me to to move on. I have I'm planning to uh, pursue my master's in library services, and my work at the central library in Austin has been very involved and wonderful. And I'm ready to kind of move forward with my career and with my education. And I kind of looked at all the things in my life that, uh, you know, are things that I love, but that do take time. And being on two podcasts takes up a lot of time. And it's wonderful. And it's been incredible. And as I was reminded on Twitter just weeks ago, I apparently recently celebrated my 10 year anniversary with MuggleNet. Um, And, you know, that all started with just auditioning for audio fictions and being a part of that experience for 200 episodes. And then you all so kindly asking me to join this podcast after I was doing the chapter titles. Uh, and it's really been just like, uh, it really has been just an, an incredible experience to, to be a part of the Potter fandom in this way. I still, one highlight of my Potter experiences is definitely, you know, being at universal studios on September 1st, of 2017, and standing outside of Kings Cross Station and reading to some of you listeners, uh, I had a group of about 30 people who were there to hear me read uh, the epilogue out loud. And it was a really incredible experience. And to be able to share my viewpoints on Potter and find that there are so many other enlightening viewpoints out there that I had never even considered in reading the Harry Potter series just the thing that the things you listeners bring to the show are just so incredible. Uh, and it's been a real treat to be a part of that. So I want to thank you all listeners for all of these wonderful years of participation and thoughtful discussion. And I know that that will continue on with these hosts, uh, that are sticking on for the rest of the ride with Aloha Um, so thank you to all of you for that.
2: And and the good thing is, listeners, is that Michael is still on literally every episode because his voices are all over this podcast. (laughs) He's really not going anywhere because, you know, as they say, oh, that's backwards. But the ones that love you never really leave you. So (laughs) the ones ones that we love love never never really leave leave us.
1: us. (laughs) <laughs> yes
2: exactly <laughs> um
1: and enough. michael we love you i mean i told you last time i've become such a huge fanboy of yours through listening to <laughs> alohamora for all these episodes and i'm so so happy we got to at least do two episodes together um uh, and yeah
0: yeah absolutely
1: well and same to you Irvin. i'm so excited you're
0: joining the podcast because i was a fanboy of yours when i was reading all of your editorials on muggle net i thought they were some of the best written pieces on the website and like I, I was, I, I, you know, for the longest time, I was like, who is this writer? Like, this this, this who's this mysterious HB boy 13? They're so smart. Um, so it's <laughs> really exciting to, because I think the most important thing when I joined Mora was to, to for the listeners to understand that, you know, you're, if you, we we all go into things like Harry Potter and any fandom with, like, you know, just this excitement and this, you know, this, this just love, this intense love for what we follow, but it's important to, and it's not, you don't love a thing any less because you can criticize it or because you can analyze it deeply and you can find its faults as well as, as much as the things you love. And in Harry Potter's case, I think when you think about the things that are its faults in some cases, it, Kind of looks it kind of helps you understand what this series was at the time that it came out. Everything that every piece of media is a reflection of the time that it was released, and Harry Potter has a lot of reflections of its time. And it was, I think, the reason it's lasted is because a lot of those reflections and pieces were timeless in many ways. Um, But I think that's so important with the fandom going forward because Rowling taught the generation of Potter readers to be very astute. Readers of media, and you know another reason that I think it was it it was good timing for me to leave this show is that I am having an evolving relationship with Potter. Which I mean, you may not initially think walking into my room and seeing like my new like pottery barn Harry Potter bed (laughs) and like my new shelves and everything, but you know I I look around at the kind of things that I have up, and it's it's things that I have really solidified about my love of Potter, and a part of that is being aware of the future of this franchise and with things like Cursed Child and things with fantastic beasts, where we're at a point where the fandom doesn't universally love what's coming out. Um, but, but still has that beautiful sense of hope of like, things could get better, you know, continue to hold Rowling and Warner brothers and all of the stakeholders in Potter accountable for that kind of stuff and tell them what you like and don't like and be vocal about that because, you know, while it may belong to them, there is a certain amount of ownership that is the fandoms. um, And it's making sure that to hold those people accountable as you go forward. So keep analyzing Harry Potter in that beautiful, thoughtful way that you do fans and know that that doesn't make you less of a fan if there's something that you encounter that's problematic or that you don't like. In fact, in in my opinion, it makes you a better fan for it. If you are somehow, for some reason, still interested in listening to me Talk about Potter after the fact. You can find me on Twitter at Lupin Patronus. Feel free to follow me there Um, if you're, for some reason, invested in my opinions. I know I will still be invested in these guys' opinions and still listening to Speak BC and Alohomora and keeping up with the show just because I'm not on it. uh, I definitely still want to keep track of that as I continue my continue. And we'll do our best to do you proud. Oh, I know you will.
3: (laughs) And I hope you join the postcard exchange on Speak Beastie, Michael.
0: I will try. It will will not be the same without you. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. So, but listeners, if you would like to be a part of Alohomora, because the Alohomora continues on and needs more beautiful voices to contribute to the show, uh, there are ways to do that. You can visit the website, alohomorapodcast.com, and choose Be On The Show. Follow the instructions, please, very carefully to send us your audition. Uh, and you can, if, if you're interested in being on the show or, uh, or even not necessarily being on the show, but, uh, giving us your input about what you want to hear us talk about, you can also visit the topic submit page to tell us what you'd like to hear us chat about on the show. You can even say if you want to be on that topic as well, you just need a microphone and a pair of headphones. If you'd like to record with us, if you're chosen to guest host, we will walk you through the rest of the steps.
2: And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at Alohamara MN, Facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore, Podcast.com is our website. The YouTube is YouTube.com backslash Alohamar MN, and our email is podcast at gmail.com.
1: And here's one more reminder to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Alohomora. Thanks again to Amy Ward for sponsoring this episode. Yay! Yay. Yay. And you can sponsor us for as low as one dollar a month, and you can be sure to check out our higher tiers for access to Dumbledore's office with perhaps a gift exchange now. Episode sponsoring, (laughs) decals, and all kinds of other good stuff.
2: And what do you bet? Somebody listened to this episode, walked around and found a hundred pennies. Just saying. I (laughs) challenge some I challenge somebody to do it. I bet you could do it. This episode's like just over two hours. You can do it. Come on, I challenge Yeah, I'm going you. to go
3: and uh, play some Wizards Unite and I'm going to find maybe some more pennies so I can up my pledge eventually. <laughs>
2: Perfect. If somebody does that, okay, go out, listen to this episode again if you've are just listening to this now go take a walk listen to this episode again show me the 100 pennies you found and i'll send you a free t-shirt how's that
1: (laughs) that sounds like a good deal to me i want to see it and i'm sure the pennies are easier to find than the quidditch cops that i just can't find (laughs) To you know i keep losing
2: losing it That stupid yep. chicken. <laughs> stupid chicken. No,
1: but thank God I finally got enough bogarts, so now I can just run away from them, because I don't do spiders, so every time I encounter one, I just give it to my friend. I'm like, catch it, catch it for me, just just do the thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So now I can just run away from them and not deal with any more acromantulas.
2: It's time to run away from this episode.
1: Oh, yes, well done. Listeners, thanks very much. I'm Irvin. I'm Michael.
2: And I'm Kat. Thank you for listening to episode 276 of mora
0: Open the Dumbledore. I just saw Hagrid, and he said you'd resigned. It's not true, is it? I'm afraid it is. Why? You're the best defense against the dark arts teacher we've ever had. Tonko. from what the headmaster told me this morning, you saved a lot of lives last night. If I'm proud of anything I've done this year, it's how much you've learned. Well, goodbye, Harry. It has been a real pleasure teaching you. I feel sure we'll meet again sometime.